0: In a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig putting in the hard yards ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Joco Hydrate sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy, supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Joco Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance, and not to mention taste bloody good. So, head over to www.getsum.com.au and use the code Zero Limits All in Caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go.
1: It's time for the Zero Limits
2: podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high charging humans with hectic stories from around the world, we'll give you the motivation to take on
1: whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go.
0: Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm here in Washington, D.C., the home of Sleepy Joe. He's probably around the corner sleeping somewhere. Oh, falling off his bike! On his bike. <laughs> as you might have just heard, then we have Kyle Schmidt here. He will be co-hosting uh, today's show, and uh, yeah. So as I said, we've got Kyle. If you haven't listened to Kyle's story, uh, we had him on episode fifty for his first podcast, and he literally gave us a full insight on his life as a US cop and door gunner. Uh, Don't forget junkie. Yeah. There was the junkie part, so you definitely need to get on and listen to episode 50 and hear Kyle's story. But on today's episode, we are chatting to a current U.S. Army Green Beret. His name is Nick Lavery. If you have heard his name before, Nick Lavery, you know exactly who I'm talking about, but there is a guy, essentially, that was injured in combat, lost his leg, and after recovery, got back to Afghanistan with a prosthetic leg and just continued on with the job. And he's one of the only guys in the world that has ever done this, especially in a conventional uh, army setting. Because as we know, there's a lot of restrictions, et cetera. But he, he did it. Uh, rather than us dribble on, let's get him on and get him to tell us his story. Welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm I'm awesome, Matt.
1: It's good to uh it's good to be on here, brother. I appreciate the time. Looking forward to, to spending some time together, man.
0: Yeah, as as I said, mate, like uh, you're one of those uh, figures that everyone, especially within the defence force in Australia, we've all seen your picture, and a lot of guys have used that motivation to get back and even take things to the next level and complete their goals, which is you know the epitome of this podcast. So, mate, let's just start right off from the start. I know you got that big, strong, thick uh, Boston accent, which we love. Can I get a cup of coffee? Um, Cap a <laughs> cup of coffee. can we just start right from the start? Let us know where you grew up and you know what led you to uh, join the army?
1: Yeah, man sure. so you know i I claim Boston mass uh, because that's where I spent most of my time as a kid and as an adolescent but the, the the reality is is I'm a nomad of Massachusetts where I moved my family and I moved to a new spot about every year. So actually, up until I got to college, uh, I never lived in the same place for more than eighteen months. Uh, so I moved around a lot. I was north of Boston, in Boston, south of Boston, mostly on the eastern side of the state is, wh- is where I spent most of my time. Yeah. Uh, which you know we can get as as deep as we want to, but just just know that 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 upbringing that I had of constantly being the new kid and getting picked on and getting bullied. And struggling to make friends and struggling to keep friends and just being this scared little kid had an enormous impact on kind of the man that I, I am today. Yeah. Right. Um. So, yeah, I moved around a lot, man. You know, sports really was the one thing I had yes. that kind of anchored me and gave me some something to do, some kind of purpose. Because no matter where I lived, you know, there were always athletic programs. So I played just about every sport there is growing up as a kid. Um, in high school, I played, I played most sports football ended up being kind of my primary, uh, sport that I really excelled in. And to get into the military side, you know, I was, I was looking at the Marine Corps my sophomore year of high school. Mm. And, you know, at, at the time, which you know, is it's much different now, but at the time when I was a kid watching the Marine Corps commercials, those guys were the baddest dudes on the planet, you know? Yeah, and huh. again, like I struggled to make friends and I was desperate for respect and I was desperate for strength and, and being a becoming a Marine would have solved that problem for me. So that gave me something to shoot for. The only reason why I didn't do that is because I started getting recruited to play football in college, which was the only reason why I went to school. I was not an academic uh, back then at all. I I hated studying. I hated homework. I did the bare minimum (laughs) just to be able to play whatever sport I had going on at the time. Uh, so I get looked at to play football. So I took that option, went to school, uh, played ball up, up at up in up at college. And then my sophomore year of college was nine eleven. And, you know, most of us that were old enough to kind of recognize what was going on at that time is one of those moments that you probably never forget where you were and what was happening. That certainly happened with me. Um and although, you know, I, I wasn't raised in this, in this military family, I don't have a strong military family. My grandfather served, I had an uncle that served for a little bit, but that was really it. Um, by the time I was in college and I saw that, you know, my my patriotism for being an American had grown and yeah. I was furious about what I was seeing on television, like uh, Really, really angry and wanted to be a part of that response. I wanted payback and I wanted to be at the front of that retribution so I struggled to stay in school at that point. I went met yeah. with my advisor and I'm like, hey, how do I get out of school? Because I'm going into the military. I don't know where, but I'm going and I want to be part of of kicking some ass and getting some payback. I ultimately listened to some advisors and mentors and family and I stayed in uh, and I grinded out the rest of my degree. And then as soon as I graduated it was when I started taking a look at serious options to, to enlist in the military.
0: Yeah, right. So uh obviously as you said the the main contributing factor was pretty much 9/11 just 100%. It was uh, yeah. yeah. And it, it's crazy because uh, you know as we look uh and you know anyone that served within the military you know in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 15 20 years everyone experienced that day everyone remembers exactly what happened during that day even for us in Australia mate I remember watching it on TV same thing and that's what gave me the kick to join the the defence force back in Australia become you know jump out of planes airborne, so yeah, it's just incredible that all soldiers around the world one event just changed their lives, and you know looking forward it changed your life forever eventually. But oh, uh, we'll definitely yeah. we'll definitely touch on that. Did you have any uh, family with uh, within your you know your dad or uncles anything that served, or you know was it a, a military background family or?
1: Not much, man. Uh, my father, no. Mother, no. Um, I had an uncle that was in the Navy for a little bit of time. Uh, my grandfather was in, like, to- like, really towards the very, very tail end of the World War II era, um, but not much, man. I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up in this super pro military environment where I learned about it as a kid. Um, again, like the Marines just gave me a, a, a an outlet to get what I struggled for yeah. as an adolescent, as a kid. Um, so no, I didn't know much about it, you know, going in and all I really knew, man, was I wanted to be in special operations. Yeah. I felt that, you know, my athletic abilities and my desire to be at the very tip of the fight, that's where I wanted to serve. But even then, you know, at the time when I graduated college, this was in 2007, you know, the internet's now on board. Google is now a thing. You know, it's in everyone's home. So now I'm able to like really learn what these different organizations and what these different units do. But I didn't grow up in a super robust military family, man.
0: So talk us through the, you know, the process for you to apply. You know, I've got a basic understanding, you know, for, of our previous guests on what it takes to join the army. Obviously, you go to a recruiting branch and they talk you into it basically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they didn't really need to talk me into yeah. it. You know, I was I was like kicking down the door. But I, you know, I walked into a recruiter station in downtown Boston, and there were three branches in the same building. They had the Army, the Marines, and the Navy. And again, initially, I wanted to be a Marine. But as I continued to learn more about what special operations does, I started kind of looking that route. The Navy SEALs came to mind immediately, which is pretty common and doesn't happen by accident. So that was my new direction. I was going to I was going to become a SEAL. So I walked into the recruiter station and went to the Navy office first and said, hey, man, I want to be a SEAL. And he said, great, uh, let's get you enlisted in the Navy. And then once you're in, then you can request to go to BUDS and go to become a SEAL. And I said, thank you. And I left and I walked into the Marine Corps office and had the same conversation. I got the same answer. And then I walked in the Army office and I got a different answer. And the recruit is like, hey, we have this contract option. It's referred to as a special forces recruit.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the nomenclature is 18 X-ray. And that gives guys off the street the chance to bypass the conventional army and go straight into the special forces. Gotcha. So that obviously caught my attention because it would get me there the fastest. So I said, great. Thank you. And I left and I went home and I started doing some homework because other than seeing the movies, you know, John Wayne and, and <laughs> Rambo. I really didn't know what, what a Green Beret did. I didn't know what a special forces detachment does. I had really had no idea. So I spent a good, you know, few days just researching what it is that these guys do. And although the army gave me the fastest route to get to special ops, the actual SF mission, the special forces mission, that of Green Berets was, was what enticed me as well. And, you know, we kind of specialize in unconventional warfare, which just in itself is a sexy term. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of pops off the screen at you. And then you start to kind of extract what that actually is. And it gets pretty wide and deep pretty fast. But even on just the unclassified version of, of what that is, it's, uh, it's enticing. You know, so I was drawn to the speed in which the X-ray option you gave me. But then I was drawn to really what Green Berets are expected to do. So that became that became the route I went, and then from that point, once I made my decision, it was it was pretty fast. You know, I went in, I knew what I wanted, I signed the contract, I did all the the, the initial screening stuff to make sure I was a viable candidate for that contract. All those boxes were checked, and then I was down in basic, uh, down at Fort Benning, I want to say, just within a couple months.
0: Yeah, right, mate. Just just for our listeners, like you just touched on the role of the Green Berets, but for our listeners, you know, more specifically in Australia. Uh, we know that here in the US, you guys got rangers, Green Berets, uh, CAG, uh, and there's multiple out of different roles. But well, you know what? What is the difference between those? You know the the main ones like rangers, Green Berets, because we've had a couple of guests on that uh, have been Green Beret qualified from CAG. Um, what's the difference?
1: Yeah, man. in um, like in broad terms, the easiest way I guess to describe it is they're all different tools. Like if exactly. you open up a tool chest. They're all you got. A diff, you got different sets of tools to handle different jobs. Sometimes you need a hammer, and sometimes you need a wrench, and sometimes you need a screwdriver, exactly. sometimes you need a scalpel. So, like these different units, if we just look at SOCOM or special operations in general, you got different tools to handle different jobs, and there's certainly some overlap where this unit does similar things as this other one. Um, you know, the Rangers, because you brought them up, they are considered the Army's premier light infantry unit. These guys are studs. Um, it's a younger demographic because you can become an army ranger at 18 years old or even 17 if you enlist early enough. Whereas in SF you have to be 21 to be able to even go into the, the process. Gotcha. So it's a SF is a little bit older of a, of a community and then therefore in theory, it's a little bit more mature because those guys have another two, three years of just life experience mm. before you can become a green beret um, tag. Or any of those tiered units, you know, what they do specifically gets pretty sensitive pretty fast, but they, they specialize in, you know, in hostage rescue and direct action type missions. So those are the premier elements, whether you're talking about Delta or SEAL Team six, What's like on? those are your premier surgical raid type elements. And they do a host of other things as well. SF specifically. Um, to kind of contrast them against the army ranges, cause I didn't know the difference for, for a while, at least until I got in the game and started playing it. Um, it's, it's a much more hands off element yeah. where the rangers, like they operate based off of infantry tactics and they're phenomenal at it. And they've got some physical specimens and they got a lot of really cool toys to use, but they're really managed the same as, as an infantry unit because okay. that's really what they are. Yeah. Over in SF, um, you've got much smaller teams, so it's a 12-man team, and you're really left with here is what is expected you to do, here is when it needs to be completed by, and that's it. Like that's the level of granular guidance that we will typically get, and it's on us to figure out how we actually go about doing that. So it's much more hands-off, uh, which some ranges, because it's quite often for, for someone who spent some time in the 75th Ranger Regiment to come over to SF, mm. It's a transition for those guys, depending on how long they spent over there, but they're expecting a little bit more micromanagement of being told, like, do this this way and then go do that that way. Yeah. You don't have that kind of guidance when you're on an SF detachment or otherwise called an ODA. So it is, uh, it's big boy rules and you're expected to operate with a high degree of integrity and professionalism because you don't really have the same type of oversight on you as you would in some of these other units. And then just to close on what ODAs really do, I mentioned unconventional warfare, which, again, is a broad, sexy term with a lot of really cool sounding words in it. What SF guys do, what Green Berets really do above all else, complex problem solvers and teachers. Hmm. We make our money or we're paid our money to teach other people how to do what they need to do to accomplish their mission and our mission. The likelihood of seeing an SFODA operating purely unilaterally, and I mean purely just by themselves conducting operations, is highly unlikely. You don't send an ODA someplace to go do something just by themselves. You send an ODA someplace because you need to gather up local individuals, indigenous personnel from wherever you are, either find them and then train them and guide them, um and mentor them and then run alongside them to conduct operations but yeah. you're teaching them how to do it on their own so eventually you can work yourself out of the job that's really what SF ODA is built
0: yeah gotcha gotcha so uh you do your boot, uh, boot camp i'm guessing that's just with everyone isn't it it's not just uh SF there's just everyone in boot yeah. camp infantry everything uh how, how did you find that obviously you were quite athletic so that always plays a you know a good hand in things? How'd you grasp the military yeah, sort of things? Yeah,
1: so as an 18X ray, as, as an SF recruit, you initially go down the infantryman process. So we go to basic training at Fort Benning, which is where infantrymen go. Um, and rather than other MOSs, military occupational specialty is what MOS stands for. Mm-hmm. It's a fancy word for your job in the Army. Other MOSs will go to basic training at a location for six, eight weeks, whatever it is. And then they'll go to advanced individual training where they'll actually learn their job. And those can be at two separate places. As an infantryman and then also as an x ray, you do all that back to back at Fort Benning. So you end up being at Fort Benning for, it's like, I don't know, 17, 18 weeks, whatever it is, straight through initial kind of indoctrination process of what basic training is, straight into learning how to be an infantryman. Um, And for me, you know, it really wasn't all that challenging. And that's not trying to me being like a badass, but I mean, I was 24 years old. Yeah. I was in phenomenal physical shape. Um, it was really more mentally challenging to kind of play the game of being a recruit in basic training. And, you know, you got these guys, a lot of them were younger than me that are like yelling at me and telling me to do stuff. And, you know, you want to be professional. It really didn't add to any like mental stress that I was going under. It was just like a means to an end where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do as I'm told, right place, right time, right uniform. I'm going to do the right thing. But all this is just kind of a requirement to get to like the real training where I'm going to be taught how to be an SF guy. Of course. Um, so, you know, I had spent time away from home. So there was no homesick. It was like nothing that. I mean, so it was, it was, it was pretty simple, you know. You know you, but from an athletic perspective, man, and just quickly, you know, I got done playing football four years of eligibility. I still have another two years left to graduate college because, again, I was not an academic. So I grinded through school. My last two years of college, I just decided to get as big and strong as I could. I just wanted to play around with it because I wasn't playing football. So I got into powerlifting and strongman type stuff. And I yoked up. I was like 300 pounds, (laughs) just massive. And I was that size when I decided I was going to enlist. So I put together like a 16-week training program. And I just completely converted how I was training. And I sliced down from like 300 to like 240. So I'd lost like 60 pounds. So I am like 240, 245. I'm like 6'5", 6'6", but I'm shredded because I was so bulky before I had trained up. I showed up to basic training. I mean, you could have put me on stage at the Olympia and I probably would have competed. But when you're, you know, when you're that big and you have that much muscle mass, you don't get nearly the calories you need to sustain that. It's not like I could walk into the weight room. And do the type of training I was doing. So, you know, it's a lot of long runs and rucking and you're not getting much food. So I lost like 20 some odd pounds during basic training uh, alone. Uh, But I could run for days and I could ruck for months if I needed to. I could do all the army stuff. Yeah. Uh, And then from there, you know, you just go right down the street to Airborne School, which is also at Fort Benning. Yeah. And you spend, I think it's three weeks there, learning how to fall out of planes and just making sure gravity still works, which it does. (laughs) It does, yeah. And then from there, it's off to, uh, to Fort Bragg to actually start the SF stuff.
0: Yeah, right. So, you, yeah, you do your airborne stuff. Just quickly touch on the airborne. I know for me, I'm a bigger guy too, 6'5", six, uh, six almost 265. And I dropped like a rock out of the sky on the round yeah, parachute. Man. I'm sure you would have been the same. <laughs> yeah,
1: man. It was like a vapor trail coming from behind me. Hey, dude, you know, like my, my very first jump, you know they tell you, you know, compare your rate of descent to your fellow jumpers, right? Well, when you're the first guy with the plane and you're moving faster than everybody else, there's no one else to compare how fast you're falling to. So it just scared the hell out of me. I jump out <laughs> of the plane and I'm like looking around, like, am I falling too fast? Yeah. There's obviously no one there. And I'm like, uh, I'm, I think I'm good. Um, but yeah, everyone's school, you know, it's it's uh,
0: it's repetitive. It's three weeks
1: long, yeah, but it's super repetitive, yeah. and I got it There's a huge safety factor. But I mean, you fall out of a plane, gravity does what it does, the chute opens, you keep your feet and knees together, and then everything else just kind of takes care of
0: itself. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And then uh, you pass that, you head off to Fort Bragg and continue on with your Special Forces uh, training. So how long is that uh, process? And um, obviously, it's done by segments, I'm sure, different different yeah. modules of uh, how long is it that total?
1: Yeah, man. So... The the course back when I went through is much different than what it is now. They, they've done a lot of work in the last few years to kind of streamline it so guys were able to get through a lot faster. When I went through, uh, it ended up taking almost two years, 18 months, 19 months, something like that. Um, and I, I mean, I went straight through, but there was just a lot of white space, or I mean like dead space in between the different phases that you would just be kind of hanging around just doing PT and going to formations while you waited for enough guys to get lumped back together to start the next phase. So then you'd, you'd go into that phase for say small unit tactics. You do that six, seven, eight weeks, come back to Fort Bragg, and then you wait for them to have enough people lumped together to start the next one. So it was kind of on, off, on, off. And that in itself was a challenge Mm -hmm. because yeah, there's certainly a lot of rigors within the training that gets guys dropped from the course, but it's a marathon. And what actually got a lot of guys dropped was just their inability to stay focused for that amount of time.
2: That's a, you know yeah. two
1: years within a pipeline. But you've got some free time in between these phases. You yeah. go downtown, you have a couple beers and something stupid happens. And that's what gets you removed from the course. Um, so, was- so, you know, go ahead, man.
2: Was was alcohol a big contributing factor in people getting dropped?
1: Yeah, it is, yeah. you saw quite frequently. Yeah. Um, I don't. I didn't have the stats and all the stats, but I would be willing to guess that those were dropped for reasons outside of training. Would yeah. definitely compete with the reasons why guys dropped when they were actually in training. Sure. Go downtown, have a couple of drinks, get into a fight, alcohol related <laughs> incident. See you, later, you know, You're done. You get a DUI. Um, you're out past curfew. If, you know, so like just stupid shit that. You know, if you were just in training the entire time, it would have removed that. And nowadays, the way that they kind of optimize the course, there's a lot less of those gaps in between. So guys are able to not only get through faster, but they're able to stay in the mindset of being a candidate and being in a schoolhouse and just stay that much more focused. So but yeah, by the time I got to selection, I'm going to mess the dates up. Uh, I think I got there March of 2009. Uh, or 2008. I'm sorry. I got the selection match of 2008, and then I got to my unit in the beginning of 2010. So, yeah, it was like two
0: years. So, 2010, that's a long uh, period to be at, you know, as you said, to be at the top of your game, you know, constantly.
1: Yeah. It's tough, man. You got, you know, you really, you had, I say had because again, it's, 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 it's much faster now, but you really needed to have a firm grasp of kind of your why and yeah. like how important is this to you. Uh, because for that amount of time, you know, you do need to stay focused, man. So it, it is very much a marathon.
0: Yeah. Did you have any guys uh, from boot camp follow the, the similar path with you? So is there any guys still in contact with from boot camp that passed through the same pathways?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, quite a bit. Um, some of which have gotten out now. You know, I've been in 15 years, some of which, you know, weren't going do to the, do the full 20 or whatever. Um, I was with the same group of guys in basic training, airborne school. And then when we got to Fort Bragg, there was a bunch of us that I was with that entire time, 20, 25 of us. And the first thing you do when you're an 18 x-ray before selection is you go to a special operations preparatory course, which is probably is called something different now. But we call it the SOP C. And it was just for x-rays. And it was a five or six week course you would go to before selection just to get you prepped for selection. So it was a lot of physical training, a lot of rucking land navigation not tying kind of this like army stuff that x-rays really didn't have a chance to like learn yeah because we're all coming off of the street well that course i think it was six weeks you would go from fort bragg you go down to camp mccall which is also in north carolina and you would train monday to friday and you come back for the weekend and just do that for five six weeks well after the first week so i've down there five days on that friday The cadre come in and they say, hey, man, this upcoming selection class that starts on Monday, they're short. They don't have they they can hold more people. Mm. So who wants to go to selection early? And I was ready to go. I felt supremely confident. I'm like, yep, if it's going to get this thing happening faster. Like, let's let's do it. So I volunteered to go early, me and like six of my buddies. So although I went to SOPSI, I went to Fort Bragg from Benning with like 25, 30 dudes that I had been training with that whole time. I only went to selection with like a handful of guys. Um, but they all got picked up. So we all kind of did go our separate ways during the qualification course, which can be based off of your language or based off of your actual MOS. So we weren't together the entire time, but we all graduated right around the same time. And yeah, man, I'm still in contact with with those dudes and and then other ones that we a little bit farther behind me. Yeah, you know, still to this day. Yeah, that,
0: yeah. that's super cool because, as you said, growing up, you were quite uh, a bit of a loner, just no friends. And then, you know, join the military, then it's a band of brothers, just the same dudes the whole time, which is super cool. Yeah, man,
1: I, I, I eventually found what I was, uh, you know, yearning for as a as a young kid, and it did that. That right there, you just mentioned that it did change my entire trajectory because I had initially planned on coming in serving in SF, going overseas, kicking ass, feeling good about being part of that response, um, learning some skills and then getting out. And then I was going to take those skill sets and experiences to another sector of government work. Yeah. But because of what you just mentioned, which really set into me on my first deployment to Afghanistan, uh, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Like that, That was when I really fell in love with the industry and decided to make it a career.
2: Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So, so I got a quick question for you. Speaking on your past, what was nine eleven like for you? Where I mean, you said you remember where you were at. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: T- talk us about. I, uh,
1: yeah, man. I got up that morning and actually went to class, which was kind of rare for me, but I did. This, I was, this was this was high school. To, this was sophomore year of college. Okay, nice. Yeah, man. So I, I'm in the dorms. I uh, get up. I'm on the way to class that morning, and all of the students are heading back towards the dorms, like hundreds of students are walking back towards me. And I stop some dude. and I'm like, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. All the classes are canceled today. So I'm like, perfect. Cause I really didn't want to go anyway. So I'm already kind of thinking how I can just waste away, you know, whatever the day away to nothing. And I get back to my dorm and I, I turn on the TV and, you know, of course everything is on every single channel. And it took me a minute to kind of process what I was seeing. Uh, but It felt like the planes were flying into me and I was, you know, I was furious and you guys can edit out this language. But my thought was how fucking dare you? Do you have any idea who you're fucking with? Yeah. You just, you just fucked up. And now not only me personally, but we are coming over there and we're going to make you fucking regret ever even thinking about attacking us on us soil. I was that, that was where I was at, man. And then, you know, you nice. kind of talked about how things played out from that point.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but they also left from Boston Logan, did they not? I think it was United 77?
1: They did. Yeah, man. And, you know, my father um, at the time was was working um, with a moving company. And they did some commercial stuff and some residential stuff. He was actually in New York. He wasn't anywhere near Ground Zero, but he was in the state of New York at the time. And uh, it took me a while to get a hold of him. Is what comps aren't what they are today. So, but he was in New York. He eventually got a hold of me. He's like, yeah, man, you know, I'm not near it, but I'm I'm okay. Uh, and yeah, they did generate out of Logan, which I didn't I didn't know that for for quite a while. Um, that's kind of ironic, you know. That's like my airport. So, I don't I don't I can't say that that added to my my rage or really had any kind of a difference. But it is you know kind of ironic anyway.
2: Yeah, certainly.
0: Yeah, that's hectic. It's it's funny because, you know, me being here in Washington right now, I've been to the – you know, driving past the Pentagon all the time and just – I keep – just every time I look at it, I just want to know where, how this plane did that damage. And it's just incredible. And I was lucky enough to head out to New York as well and check out Ground Zero, Mm -hmm. which is just one of those places that – it's just incredible. Yeah. And, yeah. Sombering. Yeah, so, mate, let's just quickly – Uh, we'll start on your first deployment. So, your first deployment was 2011. What you know, obviously, at this stage, Afghanistan is already in full swing, absolutely Mm roaring, so is Iraq. And you know, where do you get that call up? Yeah, man.
1: So, my first trip was unique, and I kind of my my career, I almost did things kind of in reverse because the I got assigned to my, my battalion. And my company within Third Special Forces Group, which is at Fort Bragg. Yep. So I finished the course, I graduated, I just had to go right down the street to my unit because it was at Fort Bragg. And I showed up, I get to my company, and my entire company was in Afghanistan at the time, minus one team. So I talked to my company, Sergeant major, and I'm like, hey, where, you know, where am I going? And he's like, here's the deal. Uh all my whole company's gone. I just got back. They're all on the way back here in the next couple of weeks. But there's one team that's set to deploy in, it was like four or five months, but they're a unique team. They're a different type of team than the rest of them. And it's usually reserved for more senior guys that have done kind of your standard ODA stuff. And then they migrate over and do some of that stuff. Mm. And I said, okay, well, I didn't know what he was talking about, but I knew I wanted to go to Afghanistan as soon as humanly possible. So he's like, go meet with their leadership. And See if it's a good fit and then you can be with them and you can go and do that thing. So I did. And you know, again, I don't come from a military family. I had done some homework. What I knew I wanted to do was kick down doors and shoot bad guys in the face. Oh, like you. that's what I wanted to do. Right. <laughs> this team really didn't focus on that. This was what's referred to as a preparation of the environment team, which is one of the missions that SFODAs have. That's just what these guys focused on. And to explain what that is, it, it gets. Sensitive pretty fast, but if you just think about the lineage of what SF is, and they were born during World War II with the OSS. That's literally the genesis of Army Special Forces. And what those guys did, those Jedberg teams, those three man teams that jumped into France prior to D Day to set the conditions for the actual assault, for the actual invasion. That is really what preparation environment is kind of at the macro level. And that's what this team focused on It's a little unique because there's already teams operating within Afghanistan, but those same types of activities still have a place. Mm-hmm. So I still didn't understand all that. I mean, I understand it now because I've been doing it for a while, but at the time I was still just like, okay, I'm going to Afghanistan as soon as possible. Like I, I want to be a part of this team. Um, but it was all senior guys. Like I said, that had normally done the normal route. I was the brand new cherry that shows up. And I'm surrounded by super senior dudes that are all in that like fifth, sixth rotation. And they've seen a lot of things. They've done a lot of things. So the standard was was really high. Yeah. And I was drinking out of a fire hose. But I had a lot of really capable senior guys to learn from. So that first deployment in, it was nine months. And we were mostly in Kandahar. Uh, and we did a lot of split team stuff. So mostly I was just with like five other dudes. And then the other half of the team would be somewhere else. And because of the type of team it was and our mission, it was just such a wide array of things that we did, all the way from getting up on Matt Bees like armored gun trucks in multi-cam fatigues with machine guns everywhere, going to do that type of stuff, all the way from getting into a soft skin, which means there's no armor, Corolla in civilian attire and driving through downtown Kandahar. So I experienced just like the range of what SF teams can do on my very first deployment ever, uh, which just, it opened up my aperture really quickly. You know, I wanted to do the cool guy stuff and I got, I got a taste of it, but I also was able to see what, wow, like what we are expected to do is much broader than that. And it's actually quite remarkable what 12 dudes are able to do, just the full spectrum of different combat operations and activities. I was exposed to that stuff from the very beginning of my career.
2: Yeah. So so third group is typically your your AO is AFRICOM, is that not correct?
1: Well, it is now. When I when I graduated the Q course, third group had taken complete and total ownership of Afghanistan. So third group owned Afghanistan in the earlier two thousands. Tenth group actually augmented Africa. So in typical third group fashion, and I'll spare you the lineage of third special forces group, but they tend to be this like bastardized children that managed to find themselves into the front of the fight no matter where it is. And they were successful at doing that in Afghanistan. So third group, all third group did was Afghanistan nonstop rotation after rotation after rotation. Sometime around 2015, 16, uh, third group started to go back down to Africa. So that was actually my last uh, deployment when I was in third group was to Somalia because third group started filtering back into Afghanistan. But during my earlier portions of my career, it was solely Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, right. Um, So during that trip in 2011, it was a highly uh, kinetic trip. Uh, You actually took some shrapnel in the shoulder from an RPG. And uh, I listened to a podcast earlier and it was almost like a tennis ball size hole left in your shoulder can you <laughs> run us through this uh this event
1: yeah man so actually that was on my next rotation in 2012
0: Oh, gotcha gotcha
1: was when i took the shrapnel yeah so i did my first pump in 11 9 months came back training individual schools i went back over again for a short thing yep came back and then i, w- I got assigned to a new team a direct action focus team and then we went back in 12 um i went back again in 12 now with this new section this new team and that was when I was rooted for the first time. We'd only been in on the ground for a few weeks, and you know we got dropped off into a hornet's nest in Jalrez District of Warback, which is historically known for its fighting. Some some really um, impressive, resilient enemy fighters are in that region, and we got the mission we wanted, and we knew it was going to be highly kinetic. And we got exactly what we asked for. So just within the first, actually it was within the first couple of days, we started getting engaged. It was like, okay, this is, this is real. Okay. Yeah. This is really what we thought it was going to be. And it was like that just about every day uh, mm-hmm. for the first half of our trip. until we kind of opened up some white space and some area to maneuver without getting engaged every single time we moved. But yeah, the first time I got hit, man, it was, I went country a few weeks. We were on the way to an op. We got ambushed a uh, small element with myself included began to maneuver through this village. We were taking some uh, heavy machine gun fire and some rockets, mostly from this two-story structure. And we basically cleared our way all the way to this structure. Um, some some indirect is going off. Uh, there are grenades that are popping off all around us. There are little toe popper IEDs that are popping off. And we're about to breach into this courtyard, and something just blows up directly behind me. And it felt like I got hit with like a baseball bat. And... I just, I turn around and there's just like this massive, not massive, like a tangerine lemon sized hole in the back of my shoulder, uh, which was a shock, you know, it really didn't hurt. People ask like, does it hurt? And it didn't. And that's again, not me being a tough guy, but there's just like so much adrenaline pumping that you couldn't feel it. And it wasn't like a piercing sensation of something penetrating my body. It just felt like someone hit me with a sledgehammer. And then you look back and you see it and there's a hole in your body. And then it, it takes a minute for you kind of to process what's happening to you and you know i plugged it pulled up some gauze i plugged it my teammate came over he wrapped it up with a, with an ace bandage real quick i wanted to continue to press because we had cleared and fought our way all the way to this courtyard mm. and our trucks are still being engaged by this building that we're now right outside of so i'm ready to go and my team Saji, was with that element with us and he uh he decided we were gonna stop what we were doing and work our way back to the vehicles and like assess the situation, which my wound wasn't that serious, but we had bitten off a bit more than we probably should have to begin with. It was the first time we'd ever gone in this village, which wasn't the last because it was a Taliban stronghold. And we had gotten fortunate, really, that this was kind of the catalyst for him to be like, OK, let's uh, let's take a tactical pause here and reassess the situation because it was just a really small element we had in the ground. So that kind of caused us to to break contact and get back to the vehicles. My medic took a look at it. He's like, "Yeah, it's not that bad, but let's, let's let's get back to the house and take a look at it," which we did. Yeah. He wanted to have me medevaced out, which was the first time Dustoff came in and picked me up. I threw an absolute temper tantrum like a child because <laughs> I didn't want to leave. Yeah. I mean, really immature, like kicking tables right. and shit. I mean, an embarrassing childish display. W-
2: would oh, you have maturity. made someone else leave with the same injury you had? Um,
1: Probably. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it, because it, it was the first time any of us had been wounded. So it was a shock to this, to like our whole like collective system. Like, sure. wow, someone's actually wounded for real. If that same thing had happened months later because guys were getting banged up throughout that trip, it probably wouldn't have warranted the same medevac that was called there at that point. But we'd only been on the ground three weeks. Sure. And it was like, let's just be cautious about this. So I did get medevac for that. Um, ended up over at Shank for like a week. And then I made my way over to Bagram. And I was back with the guys just like a couple of days after that. So I wasn't out of the fight for very long. Nice. Yeah. It was a pain in the ass because because of the open cavity, the way they treat that is they pack it with this antiseptic gauze like three, four times a day so that the cavity will close from the inside out rather than trying to sew it shut because it would leave an open cavity that would be prone for infection. So it was just this constant process of, of swapping out this packing bandage three, four times a day. Oftentimes we would do it during an operation. So I would just be like – it would only matter a time before I'd just be bleeding through all of my stuff. And then <laughs> medical Kamala, he'd he change the bandage. We'd keep, continue mission. And that's just the way – that's just the way things were for, you know, a couple of yeah.
0: months. Can we touch on how you ended up getting back to your team? Now, again, referring back to another podcast, sounded like you uh, hitchhiked your way back to your team.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. You know, I, I was – I was highly insubordinate. Um, you know, younger dude, really didn't want to be away from the boys. Of course. Even just that in itself can be difficult for kind of just your typical civilian to comprehend. Like, you're getting in gunfights all the time. Things are blowing up around you. You've got a lemon-sized hole in your body. And the only thing that mattered to you was getting back to that. And it's like, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate how that's difficult to comprehend. But that was the reality. For not just for me, but for a lot of guys, yeah, that were, exactly. you know, getting kind of temporarily medevaced out. You want to be with the guys you want to be in the fight. Yeah. So I get sent to, uh, <laughs> I get sent to, to, to Shank, <clears throat> which had a smaller element, a smaller command element that was there and a forward surgical team was there as well. They treated me. And was they that told Camp Dolky? Yeah. What eventually became Dolky at the time it was, it was referred to as Shank. Cool. Um, so the medics do their thing and I'm like, okay, cool. And within a couple days, I'm like, guys, like me and my medic can handle this. This isn't a big deal. Well, the doctor who was at Bagram, his orders were, We're gonna keep you until this thing is closed because we don't wanna risk it getting infected. Infection, yeah. Which is probably the right decision to make medically. Well, I'm at I'm at Shank for like four or five days maybe a week and i just have reached my limit so i grab one of my buddies and i have them drive me down to the tarmac. i grab (laughs) i didn't have much with me i grab my stuff i head down to the tarmac, and i just go from one plane to the other until i find one that's flying to bagram and i just say can i get on board and the pilot's like sure so i don't tell anybody what i'm doing other than my one friend i'm like don't (laughs) tell anybody just let me get to bagram and then the cat's going to be out of the bag here pretty quick so I get to Bagram. I've, I've only been, at, I was at Bagram once when we first landed in country, but we were only there like a day. And then we got pushed out to our actual training, our actual operational site. So I really wasn't familiar with Bagram I and mean, it's huge. I mean, Bagram is like a city, or at least it was. So I kind of meander my way over to where the soft compound is. And I walk into the jock and uh my, the, the SOTUS command is there. So my battalion level command is there running that element and everyone's confused. They're like, what are you doing here? (laughs) I'm like, uh, I need a flight back to Jarrez. They're like, yeah, but why are you here? And I'm trying to like do the Jedi mind thing and it's not working. And then the phone rings and our command sergeant major answers the phone and I just hear screaming on the other end. And it was from my company sergeant major who was at Shank, the place that I had just left. (laughs) And uh CSM is kind of snickering and he puts me on the phone. And I said, hello. And I just get an earful from my copy, sergeant major. He was not happy with me at all. So he screams at me for a couple minutes. And I'm just like, roger that, roger that. I don't know if I'm going to get like court-martialed or like what's going to happen. I know that I just made a mistake. Um, he's and at the end of him yelling at me. He's just like, hey, dude, like I I, I get it. I understand You know, just don't ever fucking do that again. And I said, you know, (laughs) roger that. So now I'm with the command element and I said, hey, I need a helicopter ride back to uh, the site. And as I'm in the room in this conversation, my team is out on an op and they're watching it through ISR feed. And this is my first time seeing combat through that vantage point. I've never been in an actual jock before. So I'm watching all these giant monitors and you got all the different sections and they're moving aircraft and they're doing you know, battle command stuff and all the different sections are working and my team is out and they're going to do a gunfight and my team sergeant gets hit in the abdomen and I'm watching it on, on television. Yeah, right. And now I come completely unglued, like, like lose my mind. And I throw I throw another temper tantrum and I'm like, you need to get me back there now. And the doc happens to come in and the command is like, Hey doc, Nick's like going to get his way back to Jalrez. Like, what are your thoughts? And he's like, no, I don't want to risk the infection, blah 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 blah. blah. Commander basically overrode that decision, so I was back on a helicopter uh, <laughs> like the day, out, like the next day. I got back to my team. Yeah.
0: <laughs> How crazy! You just hitchhike your way, <laughs> back yeah. To not
1: something I recommend, you know, to the younger audience that might be listening to this. They definitely don't do that.
0: Yeah, different uh, time, different times back yeah, then
1: too. It was a different time,
0: exactly. Yeah. So you're back out in the field with your team one month later. You take a bullet, uh, you know, to the face. <laughs> yeah. Next, uh, yeah, next story.
1: Yeah. Shit. Yeah, it's- it was kind of right around the time that my shoulder healed up, actually. Yep. So this was in November. And uh, we were on our way back from an op. I was in a trail vehicle. I think we had a four-vehicle convoy. And I was working out of a hatch so I could see up and around us. And our lead vehicle uh, hits a massive IED. And we had drone over this road at this point like dozens and dozens of times, but it clocks off and it just picks up this Matt V and it just tosses it off the side of the road mm. uh, like a rag doll. And I'm watching it in front of me. And we had hit some IDs prior, but nothing nearly to this this degree of severity. And it's like the truck is airborne, and I know everyone inside the truck is dead. I'm like, there's no way anyone's surviving this. And it lands off to the side of the road, kind of in this depression in this apple orchard on the driver's side door. So the passenger side door is facing the sky. It's on this driver's side door. Well, we of course have, you know, react to IED SOPs that we've rehearsed and executed hundreds of times. uh, And I don't do what I'm supposed to do. I, I do not do my job. And I end up just jumping out of the hatch. The truck is still moving and I jump off and I just take off in a sprint on foot towards the wreckage. Uh, again, like not what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, it's not something that I'm proud of. Right. But I, I'm making my way there and I'm not even moving tactically guys. I'm just like rifle in hand, just in a complete sprint. And it was maybe a 200, 250 meter sprint. And I get, I'm getting close to it. I kind of slide off the road into this depressed area where this orchard is. And I trip and fall and it's, I trip and fall of one of my buddies who was in the turret of that truck. Oh shit! And, uh, I didn't see him. I look back and it's him, my boy, Nate. And uh, I'm like, oh my, I, I, it took me a minute to process that he was even alive because I'm expecting like five or six dead guys. Yeah. His leg is snapped in half. He's clearly concussed. He's dealing with some uh, some initial blast injury, but he's alive. And I do look like a quick sweep on him. Uh, he's not bleeding profusely from anywhere and he's able to talk. So I know he has a functioning airway for now. And then we start getting engaged from three dismounted shitheads who were just kind of aimlessly shooting at the truck, which was maybe 30, 40 meters from where I was. They hadn't seen me or us yet. So I hear that I hear the tinging off the truck. And and this IED was the initiation of a complex ambush. So as soon as it clocked off, we're getting rockets, heavy machine gun fire. Uh so all that's going on. And now we got three dismounts that are just shooting at the truck. So uh, I have to leave my friend, which was really hard to do. You know, he's asking me to help, and I have to just abandon him temporarily, go deal with this problem. Uh, So I smoke two out of the three, and then the third one takes off running kind of on an angle, and he's he's got his AK over his shoulder as he's running away from me, just aimlessly firing behind him while he's running, and I can see this happening. He's not more than, you know, 25 meters in front of me, and I'm like maneuvering through this apple orchard trying to get a shot. And all of a sudden I'm looking up at the sky, just boom, I'm on my ass. Oh, yeah. And right. my initial thought was that I had run into a tree branch. That was what I thought happened. And I'm kind of looking at the sky, what the, what the hell just happened? I pop up, I kind of do like look around, I'm fine. This dude's still moving. And it was at that point I noticed the vehicle that uh, was now on fire. And I hadn't checked the vehicle yet. I didn't know who was in it. So. I let this dude go, which was tough um, because I really wanted to kill him, make my way over to the truck. And the only entrance point that I could see was the passenger door, which, again, Mm -hmm. was facing the the sky. Fortunately, the door had been blown off because those doors weigh weigh like 600 pounds a piece. The door had blown off the hinges. That was my access point. The truck's on fire towards the rear, rear of the truck. Smoke. We're still getting engaged. Machine gun rockets. At this point... Our trucks are up. They're returning fire. A couple of the guys have mortars out, so they're lobbing mortar rounds. JTAC's getting um, air support on station. I climb up the truck, and I look in, and all I see is my detachment commander, who's, like, buried down in this wreckage, kind of where the driver's seat would have been, and he's on the radio, and he's communicating or attempting to communicate with Haya the situation on the ground, which just says – a lot about that dude and yeah. his mindset and his professionalism. I mean, you're in a, a pile of rubble that's on fire and you're doing your job. Um, amazing. This dude, big boy. He played offensive line at West Point. He's like six, six, like 290 without equipment. And I look in and all I see is him. And now actually rounds from inside the vehicle are starting to cook off
3: oh, from wow. the
1: heat. So we're getting machine gun rounds, rockets, rounds inside the vehicle are popping off. It's on fire. I see him. And, you know, it's just like one of those moments, man, it's like, well, this is this probably isn't gonna work uh out for either of us, but uh but but fuck it. And like this is what's gonna happen. So like I made a real quick like peace with God and and I climb in the truck and I kinda just like shimmy him up enough. Smoke is now bellowing into the cab. I, I shimmy him up enough and kind of prop him up kind of where the dash would have been. I climbed myself back out. At this point, some of the guys, some of our partner force had shown up to the truck. And I pretty much just like deadlift him up out through that passenger's uh, door and just chuck him off the side. It, he was banged up. You know, he, he's a blow in the amputee now. One of his legs was basically hanging on by some skin. His other leg was mangled. He had an arterial bleed in his arm, so he's pissing blood all over the place. He's spalled, his whole face, all shrouded. He really should have died. Mm. We get him out, launch him off the side. They take control of him. Um, and then we just kind of go around the area to find the rest of the guys, all of which were alive, all of which were wounded, different degrees of severity, establish a CCP, um, and begin treating. We kind of get the tactical situation under control medevac's about to come in. And it was while I was treating one of the guys, he was an attachment we had, who was in the truck. Uh, his eye had come completely out of his face. It was like dangling down by wow. his cheek. So I'm like, I put his eye back in his socket and I'm gauzing that back up and just trying to keep him talking to me. Was when one of my teammates came over to me and just slaps this gauze against my face. And I'm looking up at him, like, what the hell are you doing? You know, and he's like, dude, you're like gushing blood. And I knew that I was covered in blood but I didn't know any of it was coming from me. I just yeah. been manhandling this dude who was blown to shit. He's so he's, he's applying pressure on my face. I'm treating this other dude. Um, first medevac shot comes in, second comes in, we get all the priorities out. And then my medic took a look at me and said, Hey man, we got to get you out of here to get this treated. And again, I throw a hissy fit. I hadn't seen it, but I throw, you know, a temper tantrum. I refused to leave initially Until some QRF, some quick response force guys showed up on the ground. Situation was under control. Uh, that was when I got on a bird and then I got flown, um, you know, to Bagram to, to get treated. Yeah. And, and just the quick story after that is they wanted to treat me. I needed to be treated. I needed to take a piss. I go in the bathroom. I do that. And that was the first time I looked at myself. Yeah. Gotcha. And it looked like a zombie had like taken a bite out of my cheek, like a whole piece of my face was gone. And I'm still squirting blood because the round actually had clipped an artery. And, uh, you know, in that moment I was like, yeah, man, I really owe our medic uh, an apology because he made the right call. <laughs> so, so that, like,
2: that, that, so that happened it, when you it, thought you it, ran into the tree, right? You, you didn't it, run into a tree. You got shot. Apparently right? I got
1: shot. Yeah. It turns out an AK round from this idiot who was shooting blindly actually clipped me and it just grazed my cheek. And fortunately for me, there was a an army reservist doctor was at Bagram, but in his in his civilian life, he runs a plastic surgery facility. So he's an actual plastic surgeon. Oh yeah, he was the guy that put my put my face back together. So you really can't see it unless you really look. He did a phenomenal job. Uh, Obviously, I got very lucky. If that round had been just like a quarter inch over, you know, you and I wouldn't be talking right now.
2: No, that yeah,
0: that's it. That's crazy.
2: So, so how long? I mean, that so that was it. Seemed like a significant amount of things happened from the time you were shot to the time you realized it. How long do you think transpired? Because that seemed like a lot.
1: Yeah, man, it was over an hour, <laughs> um, over an hour, probably closer to ninety minutes, somewhere in that realm. And uh, it, it, it's ironic how the like the human brain and, and body and mind function. But once he put, I, I was fine. Like moving and treating and doing my job, and then when he put that bandage on me, and I'm like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Dude, you're gushing blood from your face." Was when I felt like I had just lost a bunch of blood that had already been leaving my body that entire time. But that was when I kind of felt like felt kind of like light, a little lightheadedness, and I was like, "Wow, you know, I wonder if I ever would have even known if you hadn't pointed Said it out." That, yeah, right. You know, you know what I'm saying? This yeah. is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. So, how long was the recovery for that? You didn't uh, hitchhike your way back out to the field again, did you? After <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I didn't. It, it was also pretty quick, man. It was about a week. That was that was really cut and dry. I saw that going. They they cauterized it, um, and then they sewed it up. I was only there for about a week, Um, and then I was back out with the guys after that. Yeah.
0: Far yeah. And when you say cauterize, they're pretty much sticking an iron in your face and melting the skin to stop the bleed.
1: Yeah, it's like this little welder, yeah. you know, and the, the doc wanted to um, hit me with a bunch of intravenous pain meds because the procedure, you know, it sucks. Like you got to melt your face back together. And I, I refused the meds. I said, you know, <laughs> give me some local. But, you know, five, it was actually six of my teammates were there. Two of them were in surgery. Another of them were laid out in beds. Yeah, gotcha. That, that was all I cared about. I wanted to be coherent to be bedside with them. And I'm like, dude, you're not, don't give me anything that's, I didn't want to be hot. I'm like, no, just like, give me some local, give me some lidocaine and then just do it. And the doc's like, no, man, like you really need something. I have to melt your face back together. And my commander again came in and kind of looked at the doc and said, Hey man, just, just like, go ahead and do it. Um, and it sounds like this macho tough guy thing. It's really not intended to sound that way. It's yeah. just my mentality in that moment was, I Some of these guys I love might die. I, I, I didn't know the true severity of everyone's wounds, but they all just got pulled out of a pile of rubble that exploded. Uh, you're not going to dope me up. So I'm over here floating around all kittens and rainbows because I'm stoned. I need to be with them. So just like get through the procedure. And, it you know, it sucked, but it really wasn't like unbearable. You
3: know yeah.
2: I mean? did, did all of those guys make it?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's
0: awesome. Yeah. That's awesome.
2: Yeah,
1: they all made it. Even our detachment commander, the dude I pulled out. You know, he ended up uh, below the knee amputee. He and I um, were, ended up being at Walter Reed together once. If you fast forward, and I end up there uh, a few months later, he was still there. So we were we were both there together being treated, and he stayed in for another like four years. Um, ended up. T-
0: oh, we just lost your audio. Just, just, we, j- mate, we just lost your uh, audio. Can you hear me? Microphone is not working.
3: Uh, yeah.
0: Sorry, mate, just we've lost audio. Test, test, test.
2: I hear no. you good. Can you hear us, bud?
0: No, no. Hey Nick, I'll send another link. No.
2: <clears throat> well that sucks. I think it's the fucking connection. The connection.
0: I'll send you another link.
2: Fix that. Uh, I don't
0: know what's going on here. It
2: seems like it does it at a a time interval. How's that? Is that working? No. What's
0: going on? I I hear you fine, bud. No. I'll send another link through Zoom.
3: Oh
0: the fuck? Okay, as you said, uh, you're in uh, Walter Reed with your commander.
1: Yeah, yeah. He ended up getting uh, flown out to there. And then once I showed up there uh, a couple months, two, three months later, we we both spent that time uh, at Walter Reed together. But, yeah, he's doing – he ended up serving still for another, I think, four or five years or so after that. But all the guys that were in that incident uh, survived, and they're all they're all doing well today.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. All right, so obviously the next uh, incident is the big one for you that uh, obviously changed the course of your life in a way, uh, which we'll definitely touch on. Was that was is this the same deployment? Yeah, it is. Same deployment. So you're back out again, back out the field with with your team. Uh, Is your team obviously? you lost a few guys to injury. So is is, there's more replacements come to you know, you know, reimburse your team or is it just, you just go as a lower stock? amount Yeah.
1: No, yeah, we did. We ended up getting, um, we got a new detachment commander that came in, uh, to replace our team leader. We ended up getting a new, uh, JTAC that came in as an attachment. And, I think that was it for uh, for the soft side of the house because we did have uh, an infantry squad that was there to provide uplift security for us, and we didn't get backfilled with any more of those dudes, so we just ended up having you know just a smaller footprint after that a little
0: bit. So it was uh, March eleventh, two thousand twelve, thirteen, two thousand thirteen. Sorry. And yeah. you guys were out training a uh, Afghan police team. Was that correct?
1: We weren't training them. We were actually getting ready to go on to an op. Oh, gotcha. And yeah, we, we, so we had an A and A, an Afghan National Army Special Forces team that was co-located with us. They lived, we lived in the same, out of the same camp. But depending on a variety of variables, one of which being the size of the objective we were going after, we would roll on target or on that op with elements from the afghan security forces apparatus so we would roll with conventional army guys or afghan national police guys or afghan local police guys so and we, we when we weren't on missions with them we would be training these guys as well so on this particular day which is real close to the end of our deployment we were doing a joint mission where we had regular army guys and national police guys that were coming in and we developed an SOP, a standard operating procedure where when we were getting ready to do our mission, those units would show up, but they would stay outside of our camp. And then the leadership from those elements would come into our motor pool area. And we would brief them on what we were going to do. And then they would go tell the troops and then we would roll just to minimize how many people were around us. Uh, in that type of, in, in that type of environment, because you're vulnerable when you're there. And you're all grouped together. Yeah,
3: of course. Yeah.
1: On this particular day, um, a, a Ford Ranger pickup truck also came into our motor pool with the leadership and it stuck out at me because it was a violation of our, of our SOP. And, you know, I ended up letting it ride a uh, decision that I have to live with for the rest of my life. Um, And my thought was I would address this after this mission we were about to go on. And that truck had a a PKM, so a belt fed machine gun on the back of it. Yeah. And we get done with our our pre mission brief. You know, we finish our comms checks. I turn and start walking towards my truck, which was behind me. And one of the Afghan national police guys from that vehicle jumped up on the back of the truck and just unloaded into the group from like 25 feet away.
2: So this was a blue on green. green Yeah, green on blue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, an an insider attack. And um, yeah, man, I mean, it was catastrophic. So there ended up being 12 US casualties, uh, three of which were killed. Uh, One of which was our new detachment commander who came in to replace uh, the guy that was blown up. And then we also lost uh, another half dozen or dozen Afghans that were there as well. So a complete and total mass cowl scenario. Uh, the damage to me was mostly to my legs. Uh, I took, uh, estimated four rounds to my right leg. I took one to my lower left leg and that kind of weapon system from that range. It's quite devastating. So it just ripped my right leg to just absolute pieces. Wow. And, um,
2: so you that know, wasn't from an IED, that was from a PKM.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was from wow. from machine gun.
2: Yeah. yeah I man. didn't know and that. This is
1: another example of, of, of what I of what I mean failing to do my job because as I'm walking towards the vehicle, I hear the rounds go off behind me and I turn around and I, I see the shoot up. And I know what reacting near ambush <laughs> looks like because I've done it a whole bunch of times. Sure. But what prevented me from doing my job is I saw one of our infantry soldiers that was coming out on that op with us just frozen. And he was maybe like six feet away from me, but he just stood there. And people are dropping or scrambling, except for this kid who's just not moving, staring at a guy on a machine gun 20 feet in front of him. And seeing that uh, and processing that superseded me doing what I was supposed to do. Yeah. So I end up going for this kid and I put myself in between him and the shooter, uh, kind of just turn my back towards the gunman. And that was when I was hit for the first time in the back of the leg. And it knocks me down on top of this kid. Oh my God. And then I feel another three or four impacts to my legs. So I know I'm hit. I've been wounded before. I'm familiar with it. I know I'm hit. I don't know the severity. And I dragged me and this kid just a few feet behind one of our trucks. And, um, eventually one of my teammates comes over and he eliminates that threat this is also the initiation of a complex ambush so we've got machine gun and oh, rocket fuck.
0: so continues coming on. in
1: from outside of our camp um I check this kid I'm in no condition to address the outside problem I check this kid he's in shock but there's no holes in him and then I go to check myself you know I rip my pant leg open and my right leg is just hammered meat and exposed bone and tissue just a mess like put through the meat grinder. So I know that my femoral artery has been clipped because I can see the river flowing from Mm. where I was initially hit to where I was. And it's just pouring out of me. So I'm like, okay, uh, I might have 10 minutes left to live before I'm drained out. So I get a tourniquet. I slap the tourniquet on, uh, bleeding doesn't stop. I get a second tourniquet off my kit, slap that on. Bleeding looks like it might have slowed down a little bit. One of my teammates gets to me and I know that I am in the expecting category. I know that I'm dying. I'm convinced. So he shows up and I'm like trying to get him away from me to go treat someone else that can be saved. I don't know how many guys are down, but I know it's a lot and I don't want him wasting time on me because I'm a lost cause. He of course ignores that. He slaps on a third tourniquet. He gets IV access for follow-on meds or blood, and then his job was was pretty much done. Uh, so, you know, we say our goodbyes, expecting to be for the last time, and he moves on to go do the work he needs to do. So I'm laying there, and I still can see blood seeping out. So I'm like, you know, have I done everything I can do? And I decide I grab some gauze out of my kit, and I, un- I loosen up one of the tourniquets, and I just rammed this gauze ball into my leg and I'm trying to find the artery to place direct pressure on yeah, top right. of it. Right. Um And now this is where the pain really sets in. I really didn't feel much pain before that, but now I'm rubbing past broken bone. My femur had been shattered. I'm rubbing past that. So now it's like I'm struggling to stay conscious because the pain is so intense. And I think I feel something, but I really have no dexterity in my fingers because all the blood starts to shunt inwards to protect your organs, to course, keep you alive yeah. as long as possible. So I can't feel much. I think I feel something. I just ram down on it as hot as I can. I'm kind of reaching up towards my groin, kind of through my thigh. And uh, I feed all of gauze in on top of it. I re-secured a tourniquet on top of that. And then, you know, my work there was pretty much done. So I just drug myself over to where uh, some of my teammates were. Uh, cause our, you know, our medics they did their triage. So I get over to where my teammates were and, I, you know, I know I'm dying and that was it. And I was like, surprisingly okay with that. Um, uh, but I was frustrated that it was happening at the hands of someone that I had been working with. Like yeah. that, I remember that really sure. pissing me off.
2: Um, and he was dead at this the, point, right? You know,
1: yeah, man. After all the engagements and stuff we've been through, man, on that trip, it was just like, really? Like, this is how, this is how it ends. Uh, so that was, that was irritating. Um, and then I just spent, you know, some time comforting some of my, my buddies that were, that were wounded. And then, you know, I, then at that point I was kind of just in and out of consciousness, but I ended up being on the ground for about 90 minutes before the bird could come in for dust off to come in and pick me up because it was an ongoing firefight. So it wasn't until our, our JTAC could get on board and, and basically level the valley where the fighting was stopped and then the birds could land. It took almost an hour and a half. And then I get medevaced out. And at that point, they kind of had two options. They could send me back to Shank, which was a closer flight, or they could send me to Bagram, which had a full-scale hospital. So sure. it was like, do we go with speed or do we go with level of care? And they went with speed, which, you know, kind of makes sense because seconds were critical. So I'm on the flight. I get to Shank. There's a forward surgical team there, an FST. They They pull me in, and I need a blood transfusion desperately. The fact that I was still alive at that point was was kind of a miracle. Yeah. So they put me on a blood transfusion, and um unfortunately, it was with an incompatible blood type. Oh, no. So that shuts down like my entire body, like liver, kidneys, lungs, everything just starts to die, and they don't know what happened or what's happening, but they know that I need to get to Bagram immediately to get into the actual hospital. So they put me back on another helicopter. And they launched me to Bobber, which is maybe like a nine or ten minute flight. It wasn't like that long. Well, while I'm airborne, is when they realized what happened with the blood. And they really they mixed up my name with my team sergeant's name, uh. who was on the same chalk as me. They were giving him my blood, and then they gave me his blood. Well, I'm O positive, so I'm a universal donor. Yeah. I can give blood to anybody. He's not. He's like A V negative or something crazy that doesn't work with me. So it's while they're administering his blood that they realize what happened with me. So they call Bagram and they just say, Hey man, we just pumped Nick full of like six or eight units of an incompatible blood type. There's no way this dude is going to survive this flight. So just be prepared to receive his body. Um, and in a lot of ways they were right. Cause I code on that flight. So I'm, I'm, I'm basically dead. They pulled me off anyway, pull me into surgery transfusion, innovated dialysis. They take my leg off at the ankle. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm here talking to you. So you know, I was obviously able to survive.
0: Fuck. If things just couldn't get any worse, it did.
2: Now, do you, so do you recall that there was two villages right outside Shank that were real bad? It was Puli Alam and Baraki Barak. Did, was it, was it either of those or where the green mosque was? Do you remember that?
1: Any of those? For with
2: what it's like, so where you guys took like how far out do you, do you recall the name of the village where you guys got that? Oh, actually, you said it was so it was in an insider attack. Do you know yeah, where that we occurred? Took contact at our camp. Oh, so this you guys hadn't even got far off base yet.
1: No, no, we were on on base. Our camp. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. okay, okay. So you hadn't even started the op yet.
1: No, we were on our camp. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's quite So, uh, was there any talk about
0: green on blues? Before that, because I know for us in Australia, mate, we lost five soldiers to Green on Blues. And I know when I was there in Afghanistan earlier, 2000s, it wasn't really a prominent thing. It seems like it started kicking in like, you know, post 2009, 2010. (laughs) Exactly. The Green on Blues started happening. So was there any talk about it prior?
1: Yeah, there was. You know, around this time, it was deemed to be our greatest threat was the insider attack threat because it was so successful. which is why our SOPs were dictated the way they were, and which yeah. is why we um, adhered to them the way we did. Yeah. You know, as an 18 Bravo, which is what I was at the time, um, you know, we're the weapons specialists, but we're also responsible for tactics, for training and for base defense. That's our, one of our primary responsibilities. So as a Bravo and seeing that truck drive on, I noticed it immediately.
3: Yeah. And
1: I was aware of the threat and I was aware of the violation of the SOP because we built it. And I'm at a crossroads, man. And it's like, you address this now and error on the side of security, or do you let this play out and error on the side of maintaining the relationship you have with your partners? Yeah. And in retrospect, or if you're unfamiliar with how SFODAs operate, it's really easy, understandably so, to be like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, why wouldn't you have addressed that right there and then? Um. It becomes a little bit more complex when you live in the world of indigenous personnel. And this is the way you operate all the time. And quite literally what determines success for an ODA is the ability to foster and maintain a relationship with a bunch of locals. If you don't have them, you don't have a mission. Therefore you will not be able to be successful at it. So it is a little bit more difficult to make that decision than what it may seem to be. Obviously in hindsight, You know, there was a mistake that was made, but it was a deliberate decision that I made. It wasn't, you know, out of ignorance.
0: Well, and not just you. Surely, I mean yeah. Surely he, other soldiers uh, picked up on it as well and just Yeah,
1: same yeah, thing, of course. same thing, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course.
2: And he he was ANA, ALP, ANP what he was local police? A N P. National Police. Yeah. So one of the 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 blue the blueberries.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. So your Um, eventually patched up. Uh, When you come to, do you remember any of that? Like uh, where you woke up? Were you in Germany or?
1: Yeah. um, So I ended up having to stay at Bagram for about six days in order for them to stabilize me enough to survive uh, a flight to Germany. So at that time, um, my team had started to retrograde back, and the other teams that were in that Chalk Valley with us were all breaking down because it was the tail end of our trip. So I do have memories of some of those guys coming through and people coming to visit me. Um, it was brutal because I was intubated. And, you know, when you're on a breathing machine, yeah, when you're unconscious, obviously, it, you don't notice anything. But when you wake up and you try to breathe on your own while a machine is trying to breathe for you, it's quite miserable. Um, it feels like you're suffocating. And then, of course, the attending nurse would see me awake and struggling. Um, and trying to rip this thing out of my throat that they eventually secured me to the bed and then they would just put me back under. But there's little memories of me coming out and feeling like I was dying and then being restrained to a bed, not being able to move or breathe. And then they would just put me back unconscious over and over and over again. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty terrible, uh, during my time there. And then, yeah, man, they they deemed me, uh, able to survive the flight to Germany. Uh, I flew there. I have, very little recollection of me in Germany. I was only there a day. But in Germany is when they amputated my leg up to the knee. Uh, infection had set in, and it was just a mess. So they took me up to the knee, and then I arrived at Walter Reed after that.
3: Far out.
0: One day, one day, and then you're pretty much straight back into the U.S., straight on a herc, and they fly back to you, Walter Reed. Uh, obviously, you get back to Walter Reed, and your commander is probably still there. Yeah, is he? You know, can you run us through when the first time you saw him again? He'd be just like, "Fuck, here you are again, my
1: commander." Yeah, yeah. I uh, he eventually came to visit me. This was a few months later, or uh, maybe a couple months later, after I originally got there because he was still forward, and he stayed back a little longer because that trip was so um, catastrophic, or at least there were so many Americans that were wounded. He didn't come back right away with the rest of the with the rest of the command element but he eventually got back to Bragg, and then he came up to walter reed to see me and the other guys under his command yeah that um and you know this was again this was a couple months after and at that point i had already made up my mind that i was going back to the detachment yeah so i made that clear to him um who wasn't really that surprised to hear that from me. Yeah. He was in the process of actually rotating his command out with the guy that was going to come in to replace him. But, uh, yeah, you know, like it was my, my, my earlier days at Walter Reed, you know, I was in the ICU for like six weeks where they were still just trying to keep me alive. And they were just incrementally amputating my leg higher and higher and higher, like yep. three, or yep. four times a week. That's until funny. i was they got a hold of the infection which was the main problem that they were afraid could kill me at any point so my first couple months there was both mostly just in and out of anesthesia and on ketamine and just kind of in and out of consciousness uh during that but then even at that point though uh my mind had been made up that i was i was gonna go back to yeah to re- Mate, i
0: i already think you made that mind up years before and you- <laughs> You've shown it every single time you got injured. You just got back on the horse and got straight back out there. So you spend about, what, about 18 months ish, 15 months just in recovery?
1: Yeah, so at Walter Reed, just over a year. Yeah. And then I returned back to Fort Bragg. Yeah.
2: So I, I'd like to back up a little bit. Were you conscious of how much of your leg was getting taken at each amputation? Because, like, so I had a friend who lost a leg. Same way as you did, his was below the ankle. And like you said, the infection, it slowly worked its way up. And as I would visit him, he would, I would kind of have to be there for him to walk through the mental process of, oh my God, more of my leg is gone. Yeah. Were you, were you constantly conscious of your leg creeping closer and closer to your torso?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was. And what, what was the indicator for me? So again, my femur was shattered. And the way that they, put that back together was using what's called an external fixator called an X fix, which looks like an Erecta set. And it's literally out for me. It was on my thigh. So it's outside your body and it is inserted into your body. And that's what's holding all of the pieces of bone back together.
2: That's the pins and stuff, right?
1: Yeah. The pins and the screws, but you can visibly see the metal outside your body. So I come out of surgery And I'd be all bandaged up. It'd be this massive bandage, but I could see the X-Fix. And every time I'd leave surgery, that X-Fix would change a little bit because there was just that much less bone that they needed to be holding together. So that was my visual cue as to how much less leg I had as they were cutting it out more and more and more. Um,
2: Did, did they ask for permission to do that or did they just actually, yeah,
1: he, he did. Um, Because when I first got to the ICU, I was only there for just a handful of hours. And the chief of ortho walks in and my family had already got there. My mother's there. My my father was there. My sister might have been there already. But the doc comes in. I'm in the intensive care unit. And he's like, hey, man, this is me. Um, Here's the deal. Your leg is a mess. It's riddled with bacteria and infection. And it could kill you literally right now my staff wants to take you in the operating room down the hall and they want to amputate you at the hip right now and just get rid of the problem error on the side of caution, save your life and then get you moving on to the next phase of life. But I think I can save more of your leg. It's just going to be a street fight and I need you in the fight with me. And um, I said, okay, well, yeah, let's, let's do that. And I wasn't thinking about, I want to be as functional as I can. I honestly wasn't. The only thing I really processed was him saying, this is going to be a street fight. Like, do you want to fight? And I'm like, yeah, I want to fight. I He could have probably said just about anything. But he said, do you want to be in a street fight with me? And I'm like, yeah, yeah I want to do that. <laughs> because I'm whacked on all of the drugs. But I do remember that conversation. So in a way, he did ask me um sure. my permission. I didn't quite grasp what that was going to look like until it started happening, but I really didn't, I I was confident that they were going to get it under control and leave me with something that I could work with. Eventually it was kind of just a matter of time.
2: So now, now even with the drugs they gave you like, so maximum effectiveness of the drugs, you were still in a, a good bit of pain I'm assuming.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. The pain was, was intense and, um, and phantom limb pain really kicked in here as well, which is a wild phenomenon because it's really logical. But you know, it's basically you feel pain in a non-existent appendage. So for me it was my foot. And it felt like my foot was being crushed with a vice. Uh which again is crazy because it's not there anymore. You know, so that that sucked and there's meds to to, to you know to combat that a little bit. Uh so the, the pain was quite intense. And I'm hallucinating, you know, because I'm on a whole bunch of ketamine, so I'm seeing all kinds of weird stuff. You know, at one, at one point I ripped my Foley catheter out, oh, um, no. which caused a bunch of internal damage. Uh, and so it—that's
2: it, a gnarly it a, area.
1: Un, yeah, it was it was unpleasant, um, for sure. But you know, a lot of times people ask, like, what's it like seeing your leg like disappearing bit by bit by bit? Like, didn't that mess with you? Mm. And what? I was able to leverage in kind of a sick way was, you know, so I took a round through my lower left leg and I had um, compartment syndrome, which is when like the blood fills up in the fascia between yeah, the yeah, muscle yeah. and it gets really big. And sometimes you have to amputate it. Well, they did a double fasciotomy, which they just sliced down the sides of my leg, let everything drain, put it back together and just hope that it was okay. And it was, but I had nerve damage in my left leg. So my left foot, it's called drop foot. It was just dead. Like I couldn't move my left foot. And even though I was going through surgeries two, three times, four times a week on my right leg, I knew I needed my left leg to function because that was going to be my motive. Whatever you end up leaving me with on my right side and whatever prosthetic you give me. I am going to need my left leg to work. exactly. So after every surgery, I was more focused on trying to move my foot, my actual foot. That was where most of my frustrations were, was in the fact that the nerves hadn't regenerated yet in my left foot, my actual, the only foot I had. So when docs would come out of surgery, they'd be like, okay, we had to take a little bit more of your quad. We had to, we had to remove your hamstring. I had to take out another inch of FEMA. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever when are you going to get my left foot working again? And he's like, I can't do anything about that. You just have to let the nerves regenerate. It just takes time. That was my incessant focus. I'm like, fix my left leg, fix my left leg. It was almost like I didn't even think about what they were doing on my right side because I was so focused on getting my left one back to operational. And then another moment that I'll never forget was that once this exact thing happened, they're briefing me about what they just did in surgery. And I go to move my foot And my big toe just like wiggled a little bit and you would have thought I just won the super bowl or you would have thought I just won like the heavyweight championship of the world, man. If I had champagne, I would have been popping (laughs) it and spraying it around the room. I was so excited that the nerves were starting to come back and I could actually see it that even though I was still going through surgeries, it was like, how much more can I move my toe? Oh, look what I can, I can move it this much more. I can, now I can start to move my whole foot. So it was, that was where my mental bandwidth was exuded into. And then eventually they they got the infection under control on my right side and then they were done, you know, chopping pieces of me off and then I was just off and running.
0: Yeah, that is just absolutely hectic. Uh, so over the next, you know, yeah, as you said, 12, 12 months-ish, your, you know, physio, uh, getting your prosthetics uh, fitted, learning to walk again, uh, which obviously is a big thing. Again, uh most of us already know a few guys. We've had a couple of guys on that have lost their legs as well, and they said that's one of the hardest things is learning how to walk again, uh, yeah. which is always a, a tough thing to do. Just to move forward, you've got that mindset. You want to get back to Afghanistan, back to the place that did all this. Uh, fuck. Like You're back at Fort Bragg, and what's the command thinking at this stage? Because you're just – did you did you throw another hissy fit? and get back over, or, or did you hitchhike over?
1: No, neither. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't quite go that off the rails. But yeah. When I got back to Bragg, you know, the command at, at every echelon had rotated out, so it was new faces. And I got back, and I met with the group command team, and, um, you know, they said, hey, great to see you, great to have you back, yada, yada, yada. And They said, wait, what are, you, what are you trying to do? And I told them right there and then, I said, I'm going back to the team. And they said, okay. Uh, what how? When can you do that? How can you do that? They, they they were confused as to like if that's even possible.
2: Yeah. So so I am too. Hold on, hold on a second. That's, that's an awful big leap we just made. So you lost your leg. You're in Walter Reed. You're determined to go back. What was the process? So it, I know that in your mind you wanted to go back. How supportive was the army in terms of, you know, knowing what your injuries were? allowing you to go back and, and your predecessors. Was there any, like anyone who preceded you that had come back from those injuries? Were you the first? Well, like how, what, what was that process like and how supportive was the army of yeah. how the severed I mean, dude, you were messed up. So. Yeah. Yeah, man.
1: I mean, and it was definitely a, a phased model, you know, it was iterative that kind of happened in real time, but it did begin with me telling my, my command, my intentions, and they said, okay, um, well, you clearly can't do that now. Like, I was just a year out. And that's early on in the APT yeah. world, especially as an above the guy. So I'm, like, hobbling, you know. I'm not, like, this physical specimen. So they're like, okay, well, uh, we don't really know what that looks like. But I said, yeah, this isn't something I can do now. In the meantime, I need a job. I would like to go work as an instructor teaching combatives if you would allow me to do that. And, you know, I grew up doing combat sports and boxing, jiu-jitsu is a great fit. And they let me do that. So now I have a job. Okay, cool. So I'm back to brag. I have a job. I'm working as an instructor. And of course, because of my injury, it triggers a medical evaluation board. So So, now the department of the army is looking at whether or not I am fit for duty. And what they look at, a bunch of things. But one of which is a list of physical requirements based off of your MOS. So as an 18 Bravo, a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant, here's this list of things that you need to be able to do for the Army to find you fit for duty. Well, that process took eight months from start to finish, during which time I'm working as an instructor, but more significantly, I am out of my mind uh, determined to get back to the team. And when I tell you guys, I punted, Everything in my life that wasn't associated with getting back to that team, yeah. that would be an understatement. It was my entire life, my entire structure, the relationships within my life was all around, does this enable me to get back to doing what I want to do? Belligerent, reckless, uh, crazy, obsessed with doing this. So it's an eight-month process. My med board is happening. I'm working as an instructor and I'm training like a lunatic, eat, sleep, train. That was it. The end of that, the army determines that I'm unfit for duty because I can't do a lot of these things. That's a requirement of my job. So the army finds me unfit. Well, during my back and forth on the administrative side, I found that there is another option referred to as continuation on active duty or co-ad. And what it really is, is it's, If the Army finds you unfit, you can submit this request that allows your unit to assume the risk to retain you anyway, even though the Army found you unfit. So that's ultimately what ended up happening. It took eight months for the Army to deem me unfit for duty. It took my unit five days for them to say, we're keeping Nick anyway. So they approved that. It needed to get some signatures from some generals. which took some phone calls and it took some, you know, leg work, no pun intended on my behalf. Uh, it wasn't like a clear cut process. So I had to dig my heels in and, and, and insist and then demonstrate what I could do and what I was going to do. And they were comfortable with assuming that risk. It's extraordinarily rare for that to happen, yeah. but it did with me. So eight months army unfit, five days, my unit up through. U.S. Army Special Operations Command says we're going to keep Nick anyway. At that point, my physicality had come back. You know, things were different, of course, but my size, my strength, my speed, I'm learning how to do stuff. And at that point was when I said to my unit, my chain of command, now I want to go back to the team. So how do I do that? And, you know, you're, you you kind of hit on this, Kyle, it was like, were you supported? And on the exterior Every single person I talked to was supportive of me, mm. but oh, really, wow. and I, many of which have admitted this to me after the fact, no one really thought that this was possible and it hadn't happened before, you know? So on the exterior, it's like, yeah, man, we're behind you, but really no one thought that they would have to get to a decision point to decide if they were actually going to put me on the team. It was more like, eventually he's going to realize that, that this isn't going to work and we won't have um, a deal he, with it. He's going to kind of like, yeah, he's going to just like shift his, his direction somewhere else, which didn't happen. So you so forced I, it on them. And like, <laughs> what do I need to do to get back on my team? And the, you know, you brought this up too. There were other amputees, especially in third group that were still there working because we owned Afghanistan guys were getting blown up and shot up all over the place. So third group had a bunch of wounded guys, some of which even above the knee guys had attempted to get back onto the detachment and they just didn't quite make it across the goal line. But those guys really did sensitize our leadership to what amputees can do.
4: Oh yeah. So
1: they did kind of soften the trail a little bit. I just needed to, to to go down it as far as I could. And then I needed to trailblaze the rest of the way across the goal line. And I, I give a lot of credit to those guys who did that because it wasn't as shocking as this is the first amputee ever to try to do something like this. I ended up being the first one to successfully complete it. So you
2: carried the torch for those dudes. Kind of like each of you passed it off.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so I gained a lot from those guys, you know, physical training, tactically, how to, how to function as a one-legged dude. Um, but once I said I was ready to go, they just, they just started throwing different assessments and tests at me. You know, and it started off pretty basic. It was just your standard Army physical fitness test. And then it was every single Army fitness test that we have for record. And then it just kept going and going. You know, it was like a 12-week process uh, where I was doing one or two things a week. A lot of it was physical, but then it also spanned into uh, cognitive assessments, proficiency assessments for me to function as an 18 Bravo. They had me go through another psych eval because... Like I said, I was out of my mind. So I think people genuinely yeah. thought that I was crazy and yeah. like needed clinical treatment. Um, Psych came back and said, you know, he's no crazier than he was before. Like, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that whole thing mm-hmm. took like, took like three months, a little over three months. And then the last assessment was a physical one. And third group had independently, internally designed a physical fitness assessment specifically for wounded guys that wanted to get back into the fight because third group had so many wounded dudes. And it was, it's a brutal assessment. It has since uh kind of morphed and it's an assessment that all of the groups use even for able-bodied guys, but it was brand new. And I was taking it the following morning. It was, I, it was, it was my, it was expected to be my last physical test. And I went in the gym the night, the day before and our company or our, our group command sergeant major, Had just taken it and he was not injured. Able bodied dude, absolute stud. He took it alongside one of my buddies who had been shot through the hand and was trying to earn his way back onto the team. This CSM took it just as like a battle button. And I walk into the gym. I'm just going to loosen up. You know, my test is the next morning. And they're both laid out on the turf in the gym, just exhausted, covered in sweat. And CSM's like, hey, man, you taking this test tomorrow. And I said, yeah. He's like, cool, man. Well, you know, I'll be there and, and good luck. So thanks. Next day I show up. There's like 50 people at this thing. Every level of leadership is there. My teammates are there. All my combatives instructors are there that I've been working with. It's like this whole entourage. It's a 12 event test and it's designed to replicate the actions of being in combat. So it's not like push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups. It's like tactical movements, sure. all of which are done with a 50 pound weighted vest. It's a brutal assessment. And um, I get done with that, man. And I'm on the verge of passing out. I'm completely spent and I'm standing there and I'm like losing peripheral vision. And the command sergeant major walks over and he says, Hey dude, you know, I just took this test myself yesterday. And I said, yeah. And he's like, if I wasn't here to witness you do that myself, I would not believe that that was possible. And I said, great. Well, thank you. But like, what else do you guys need me to do? Like, are you going to put me back on the team now? Like, seriously, what else do you need for me? And he looks over at the group commander and he's just like, Hey man, this is, this is your decision, but I don't know how you're going to tell this dude no after what we just put him through. Yeah. So the CSM said, yeah, man, you're good. Um, I'll have your orders done, you know, at the end of the day and you'll be good to go. So the following week I was, you know, I walked back in the team room back on the same team uh, a lot of the guys were still there. A lot of the senior dudes were still on the team. And they were real late in their train-up um, getting ready to go off the door. So I was only on the team about a month or two. And then we were back in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah. So Afghanistan 2015. It, the, the crazy thing is, is uh, for the psychological warfare for the Taliban, they would have seen you come in. Obviously, they have been watching from the hills, seeing you just cruising around with your prosthetic, just going, look at this absolute fucking machine. This, th- we, we can't take these guys out. The, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it probably would have worked within the hand of the army as well, using that psychological yeah. warfare.
3: Yeah.
1: Pro- 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 you know, probably what what I can say with certainty, though, is, you know, that effect had had that effect with my teammates. Yeah. And, I was going to you know, say. they were alongside me training and seeing what I was going through and how badly I wanted it, I mean, it upped their game, man.
2: Sure. So, dude, that helped know, the whole Army's game.
0: Yeah.
1: That
2: motiv- I wasn't even, I mean, I was a dust-off guy. When, when I first saw that, I, I saw your picture years ago, and when he told me we were going to interview you, I was like, I heard the name, and it didn't really ring a bell, and as soon as I saw the picture, I was like, holy shit, it's that dude? The guy with the Boston hat, the big fucking Green Beret <laughs> dude. No shit, but-
0: And how did you find that deployment? Did you, was it back to just being kinetic again?
1: Yeah, man, it was a kinetic trip. You know, it was a CT mission. We were on the commandos, and we really spanned most of the country uh during that time frame. And there were some pretty mo- uh, momentous uh events that happened on that trip that we were a part of. So it was, it was tough. You know, it wasn't like I got this kind of cushy, chilled spot where I could kind of set up my routine in a single location. I mean, we were living out of out of ba- out of backpacks, rucksacks, and uh, for most of the trip. So I got probably the most difficult type of mission that we could have get been given for my first trip as an ODA or my first trip as an amputee. But, um, I, I learned real fast that I had a lot of gaps in my tactical game because prior to, I was, I was training mostly in the gym on the track And, you know, I was out doing some field work, but I was being evaluated in these different like training arenas. Of course, yeah. That's where I needed to demonstrate my abilities. It really wasn't until I got to Afghanistan that uh, I really committed to more tactical tasks. And I realized how many gaps I had, small things that you wouldn't think of that you just take for granted as a two-legged dude. Um, For example, just getting it out of an armored truck. Yeah. Armored military vehicles are not built for comfort. And they're not built for convenience. It's uh, the first time I went to climb into a Mat V, I was like, uh, how do I even do this? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So in, you know, and in, in my employment into actual ops was very much a crawl, walk, run. You know, we were all very in tune with, uh, the level of risk that would be involved with me being on an objective. So it started off really small and then would, it gradually increased over time during over the six months I was there. So during any of the downtime that we had in between training or ops, whatever, I would just spend training on these little minute tactical tasks, like getting in and out of a vehicle. And I must have done that one thing a thousand times. I would just over and over and over again. You know, we would make it into these team events where we'd get two vehicles side by side and I'd go on one teammate would go on the other. The guys have a stopwatch out. You know, we just be competing on who can get in the truck and out of the truck faster. Me yeah. versus whoever. <laughs> and, you know, videotaping it. I'm watching the film. I'm like, well, if I put my hand here yeah. and I put my left foot here, I can shave off a half a second and just being super meticulous about just the most mundane of tasks until you found a system that worked. And then you just like anything else, you just repeat it incessantly until it becomes second nature. So that first trip, man, um, was extraordinarily busy because I was doing all this other stuff in addition to our actual work. By the time I got home, man, I was just completely exhausted. I think I slept like a full month before I could <laughs> really do anything productive after that.
2: <laughs> so, so that, that trip was in which AO? So we originally, we went into
1: Kabul. Okay. Uh, we were at mm-hmm. a Scorpion. Nice. But, um, we ended up moving around quite a bit. We were down at Helmand for a little bit because they had some, some stuff down at Antonick happen, um, and then Kunduz uh, fired off in 2015, so yeah. we went in for that. Um, so we, we were based out of Kabul, but we moved around almost sure. the whole trip.
0: Yeah, right. So that was your last trip to Afghanistan? Yeah. Yeah, right. And how was, how was the emotions when you got back to the U.S.? Obviously, again, post-injury, you've deployed with um, with the injury, you get back. Uh, have you had a wife, uh, partner, kids? I have the kids in the background there.
1: I do now. Yeah. Um, at the time, I didn't. Uh, although my now wife, who's also active duty, she was in Afghanistan when I originally got shot up. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, we had known each other for a long time. but. You know, we weren't like a couple or anything, but that was like the initiation to our relationship, which yeah. is kind of wild, man. Like <laughs> my my courting phase was me at Walter Reed. And then I got home to brag. I moved in with her. And within like a week, I sat her down and said, hey, babe, uh, I am all in on this particular goal. And... We will not be taking any trips. There will be no dinners out. There's no weddings. There's nothing. And I understand if you don't want to be a part of that, because what I'm describing probably sounds crazy. Um, Fortunately, you know, for me, she was strong enough to to stay on board. And I can get emotional talking about this pretty quick because my family is the most important thing in my life by a mile. And I look at the two young boys that we have now, and the family we have now, I'm just so blessed and, and grateful to have it. And all easily, easily could have ceased to exist exactly. because of what I was insisting on doing. Uh So, you know, just I can't give her enough credit for who she is and, and what she what she stuck by me through. Yeah. That's but yeah, said. coming back from that trip, man, you know, to answer your question, it was a wave of emotions because, you know, I was successful and nothing happened. We had vis- our team and me had visibility all the way up through people in where you're at right now, people yeah. in Washington. Yeah. I mean, it was so unprecedented that it was almost like people were just waiting for that one thing to go wrong for them to pull me out of there and be like, yeah, we tried it. it, it this, this isn't going to work uh, like great effort, but like it's time for you to move on to something else. But we were successful. We had a, a very successful deployment. So when I came back from that, um, that was when I kind of got thrusted into the spotlight a bit. Of course. Yeah. And that was a real challenge, you know, because the army and SOCOM and Yusuf sock and third group wanted to kind of highlight this because it was impactful, you yeah. know, and it's, there's a lot of benefit. Absolutely. You extract from that, but I, it took me a while to see it that way. I, I am the quiet professional. I'm here to do a job. I don't want to be treated any differently than anybody else. So keep all that away from me. (laughs) Right. Eventually I got to a point where I was being ordered to be involved in stuff like that.
2: Yeah, of
0: course.
1: I'm grateful for because that had that not happened, chances are you and I, we wouldn't even be talking right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And
2: you've also helped a lot of people. So when I followed your page on Instagram, one of the Marines who I picked up in 2012, who was a bilateral above knee amputee, Jorge Salazar, who is now an Olympic athlete. Yeah. So that was one of the brains I picked up. You motivated him to move on. My best friend Jesse, who lost his leg after our third tour, you. I mean, there's so many guys who have had these tremendous injuries, and it could have been any of us, but it was you guys, or the you know the ones who had happened to. But yeah, I mean, I I can see why the army got behind it, and why Usosak, SOCOM, everyone got behind it, because even as a non amputee, it was motivating. So you, you helped a lot of dudes, man. It was. It's very fucking cool to talk to you.
1: Yeah, man. And, you know, I I had the help of some senior leaders who I wasn't in a position to say no to. (laughs) Okay. Who, you know, helped me see it through that lens. And, you know, I got asked to go speak at this thing and there was some... Some policymakers that were down to brag and I said no and that got overridden by uh, a <laughs> general who you don't tell no to when you're a staff sergeant. Sure. So, you know, I showed up and I did my thing and I was professional and I spoke about what was asked of me. And then afterwards he came to me and said, Hey, dude, listen, I get it that you don't want to be doing this kind of stuff, right? You have a job, but you have taken on a responsibility to the people that are going to be coming up behind you or lateral to you or whoever that are dealing with a struggle or some set of adversities that they're dealing with. You owe it to them. This isn't about you wanting the spotlight. It's about your requirement to them. And that was, I'll never forget that moment because that was the initiation of kind of a transition for me to see things a little differently and realizing that there is a difference between being a quiet professional and a silent professional. And once you can distinguish the difference between the two, and knowing what my intentions are, it still has taken years, but I've gotten to a place, obviously, because I'm here to spend some time with you guys where I can see the value. Oh, um, yeah. And putting yourself out there a little bit.
2: Tremendous value. Yeah. Tremendous. No, that, yes. Exactly.
0: Mate, uh, we've been talking for a good hour and 40 ish minutes, and it's been absolutely fucking hectic. Like, just insightful, motivating. I want to get to the gym this afternoon, just absolutely fucking rip it apart. Oh, yeah. uh, mate i've got three questions uh, we ask all our guests now the first question is mate with this first question you are the epitome of this fucking question what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on um you know complete every goal they set to mind so you know you, basically for yourself you set so many different goals throughout your career after getting injured three times three three purple hearts and every single time you just got back on the horse and got to it you know even hitchhiked your way through Afghanistan to get back to your team, which is not a normal process. So what advice can you give to people?
1: Yeah, man, it, there's a lot there. I, I think I'm just going to start with what I believe is kind of at the core of that, and that is um identifying w- what it is we're passionate about and what our purpose is here on this planet. And this sounds spiritual or, or, or up in the clouds and kittens and rainbows type stuff, but I know with certainty that if I didn't love – my profession and my, more importantly, my lifestyle as much as I did and also link that to what I know to be the reason why I was put on this planet. I would have not have been able to get past the adversity that was coming down the pipe. That was what kept me. It was, it was facilitated me to be able to keep going was at the core. I loved it and there's a purpose behind it. So I challenge most people to take a real hard, honest, Honest look, just yourself in the mirror and ask yourselves what it is that you want to do. Or better yet, who do you want to be? And that may take a minute for the answer to come back. I noticed that oftentimes passion or purpose kind of, kind of sneaks up on us and kind of whispers. So you really have to listen and disregard, uh, what it is you feel obligated to project. Uh, outwardly for any kind of external satisfaction, just you with yourself. Life is a gift, man, and it can end in the blink of an eye. Exactly. I can tell you all about it. Um, so find out what that is and then commit to it with the level of, of, uh, of obsession that, um, that I did, you know, yeah. I think that's key.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, fits. Believe the me. occasional hissy fits. I think those are okay. <laughs> you know,
1: you know, it's, it's it's probably going to happen. The frustration is going to happen. Yeah, it's like get past it and move on. Yeah,
0: um, <laughs> mate. Second question: We know that you're still current serving. What is the plans for the future?
1: Yeah, man. I, you know, and I just talked about you know passion, purpose, stuff, and you know a lot of guys struggle with transition because it's. I would say it's impossible to completely fill the void exactly. of what military service is like. The level of responsibility. The level of camaraderie, uh, you know, I, I can't think of an industry that is going to replace that entirely. Struggle, can, you know, transition can be difficult. Um, okay. I'm blessed because I've identified what that next thing is. And, you know, I'm really already doing it now. And it's not much different than what I, you know, what I currently do in uniform, you know. So, like, I'm a chief one officer. And what we really do above all else is we work as advisors. That's kind of the the definition of what a, a, an SF1 officer is, is an advisor. So I look forward to really doing the same, doing that same thing, just kind of through a different mechanism. Um, you know, I, I wrote my first book, which came out in January. I'm currently working on three more. Yeah. Uh, so I want to continue my writing and then get more into, you know, speaking and workshops and consulting work and seminars. Um, and really just continue that same. That same type of advisory, just you know, in the civilian sector to whoever may uh, whoever may be looking for it.
0: That's awesome, mate. And um, third question. This one is just to bring us all down to the to a level of being a human. Now mm-hmm. you're an absolute badass. Let's you know if you ever look at his pictures online for the listeners. Fucking oh, he's an absolute. He, your nickname is Machine Nick because you're an absolute machine, mate. Yeah. What is your guilty obsession? Now, just for, you know, just a, for me, I'm going to head to the gym this afternoon. The music that I like listening to in the gym is actually like Mariah Carey and a bit of Whitney Houston. It just calms me. It just mellows me down a bit, but I can lift like a motherfucker. So yeah, exactly. So what's your guilty obsession? Is it, you know, late night on ice cream or, you know, do you like watching the notebook? Do you shed a tear in Titanic?
1: My guilty <laughs> obsession. I'm going to bring up what you mentioned because most people, uh, are surprised by this, but when I'm training, I listen mostly to, uh, instrumentals, Not like right. you what go. you would hear behind like a movie trailer. Yeah. That's sure. what I listen to. Fine. So actually my current one that I'm on now is the entry, uh, or the, the trailer theme to Top Gun Maverick. Oh, I've yeah. Got that thing oh, nice. I'm like repeat. <laughs> but, so a lot of times that <laughs> ventures out into more like classical, you know, type. Music, but if you see me, if you see me in the gym, like crushing it and grunting yeah. and screaming, I'm usually listening to like high
0: yeah, type, um
1: type music. Um, and then my other guilty pleasure, you know, I grew up Italian, so I am Italian. I'm half Italian. I will annihilate Italian food. <laughs> I can eat pizza every single day. Oh, I will yeah. do it. Unfortunately, it doesn't work with some of my physical and health <laughs> goals. Uh, But that tends to be my go-to when I'm having kind of like a shit day and I'm in the the mood for just like, fuck it, then we'll go down the Italian road and things tend to look a little brighter. Yeah,
0: awesome. Awesome, mate. That's awesome. Bit of of classical music, instrumentals. Love it. Uh Love it, love it. Mate, again, uh, you know, I reached out to you. You got back to me. You were pumped to get on. Mate, we have been super pumped to get you on. Uh, again, it's a little bit different for us because normally we're in my studio back in Australia and it's a full setup and makes everything easier. Normally got my co-host, but we've got Kyle here today and it's just been super cool to get you on, man, and just hear your story. Just because again, we've, as you said, you know, from that 2015 period, you've been within the limelight of the world, especially within militaries around the world. And just quickly in regards to Call of Duty, obviously there's a skin on Call of Duty that Uh literally, it's yeah. It they've stolen that from you, haven't they? That's you. But let's not lie. Let, Wait. That's so you. the
2: video game has an imitation of his yes his uh, likeness. Like
0: he's, he's, he's just him. It's him. Like you can play. Do you as... get
1: residuals for that? Yeah, they should. <laughs> I, I do not. Yeah. And, uh, oh, what the. There's fuck? There's a long story there, man. But uh, yeah. Let's just, we'll just, yeah, we'll say that I'm I'm happy that. The amputee capability is getting out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I had nothing to do with the creation of that. I, yeah. I'm not involved with it at all.
0: Oh, what the fuck? Yeah. No, awesome, man. Again, thank you again. I actually, quickly, if people want to get in contact with you, they could just head to your Instagram and your website.
1: Yeah, man. Website is uh, machinenick.com. It's got links to the book and to <clears> all my socials and to the nonprofits I work with. And most importantly, it's got a way to get uh, directly in touch with me, whether that's for something business related or... Or you just having a, having a rough go at 4 a.m. and you want someone to vent to, uh, I encourage people to do that. I am meticulous about getting back to people. Sometimes it can take a minute, but yeah, uh, by all means reach out and I look forward to communicating with, you know, whoever's got some issues, man.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, man. Really appreciate you again. And, uh, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's been fun, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Take care, bud. All right, guys.
2: All right. Kyle, how was that, mate? What um, a what a story, dude! So not only did he return to combat as an amputee, but as a Green Beret to do it within Special Forces. I mean, th- there there's been amputees who can go back and sit behind a desk, but he went back. You know, was going outside the wire on missions, jumping in and out of. And I mean, you heard him tell the story about having to to learn how to go just the simple task of going in and out of an MRAP or you know armored personnel carriers. You know, a- any vehicle that we use. And that's, that's all inspiring that, that he had that level of dedication. And
0: it, it wasn't just that one time. It was, you know, the first injury. cops a RPG to the back, a bit of uh, shrapnel. The frag. Yeah, throws a whole, you know, blows a bloody, you know, lemon-sized hole in his back. He hitchhiked his way. <laughs> this is up, yeah. After they medivac him, he's hitchhiked his way back onto the field with his boys, like, you know, a week or two later. You know, still healing and... Which is just another level, but it's funny because this is where the special forces side of thing comes in because his commanders are just like, Oh, just don't do it again type. Yeah, thing. that's you the know? mindset. If it was like not regular infantry that mate they would have sent you back to Australia or Oh, <laughs> back they would've to the have US lost and, rank. Yeah, you know, in prison for yeah, hitchhiking through <laughs> Afghanistan. And then he gets back to his team on the same rotation and gets hit again. This is where that it was an MRAP gets crumped by a IED. You know, the blokes are, you know, all over the ground and He's gone just, you know, disregarded his safety and obviously the 5 and 25.
2: Had to jump in while it was while it was rolled over yeah. to pull his commander
0: out. Yeah, and he tripped over his, his boy before, you know, he got to that. that right. Yeah, and that's when the, the three tally uh, were within 30 meters. So he's sent two of them down for dirt naps and uh, one got away. But when that one was running away, he's done the old, you know, sp- spray and pray over his back and, uh, Nick thought he actually ran into a tree, which is crazy. And, but it turns out it was a Got seven. Yeah, it, it was a seven six two by 39 that <sighs> grazed his face. Um, which was enough to get him, you know, medevaced again. But before that, you know, as you said, he dragged out his uh, commander out of the vehicle and, uh, far out. What a, that's just, that's a tough son of a bitch. Hectic story, man. And again, he gets, uh, medevaced back, throws a hissy fit or two. And- <laughs> And then he's uh, patched up. Uh, he had the surgeon. The surgeon was like a plastic surgeon as well. Yep. So they've prettied him cauterized up. Cauterized the wound. Yeah. Cauterized a wound and, you know, make him look a bit like Michael Jackson. Uh, patch him up. Get him back out in the streets. Streets, which I mean back to his team uh, in Afghanistan. Back to He got job. back after it. Yeah. Just he
2: got right back after it.
0: Crazy. And then. This is where it gets, you know, crazy because for us in Australia, mate, we've experienced this uh, green on blue bullshit. The green on
2: blue shit was fucking out of control at that, at that time. That that's, that's when it got bad. That's that's like, it was I mean. the pinnacle. was like, it. crazy when I was there. You
0: know, the amount of times I spent within, you know, groups of just Afghan national soldiers or you know the Afghan national police, it, it didn't even cross my mind once. And I don't even think in our pre-deployment it was because it was not a prevalent thing. You know, when we went through. And obviously, as we said, it started picking up 2009, 10, 11, 12, it just started.
2: And I'm sure you would have picked up a whole bunch of- uh- I could go on for days about how many guys we picked up. And that's the only reason I kind of like noticed when he said green on blue, I was like, oh, that was the first thing I noticed. Because yeah. It happened so much. Yeah.
0: So this vehicle, you know, uh, turns up A&P and p Thought about questioning it, and I'm sure the other guys were going, "What the fuck's this vehicle doing here? It's not part of the convoy. It shouldn't be here.
2: Get rid of I'd it." I'd love to know more about that. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. So obviously they wanted to obviously punch out and get the job done, and you know it was just like, "Fuck, whatever."
2: Right. Make it happen. Let's Ex- let's make the mission happen. Let's let him roll with us. Whatever. Let's
0: just yeah, exactly. And obviously at that stage, just blokes jump up on the PKM and just fucking let it rip.
2: That's a big gun too. That PKM's <sighs> a fuck. I mean, that's that's our two forty.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, it's in the yeah seven six two. It's a big round and. It knocked down, he said, 12, 12 soldiers, U.S. soldiers a killed, bunch of guys. I think he said, killed four or five. We'll have to check those stats and, uh, put him out. Well, I caught him in the leg a few times. Yeah. What's the
2: more, how his injury was? Well, that's in, as
0: he said, there was a, a young kid, young U.S. soldier there, infantry guy just froze, you know, yeah, and it happens, happens to the best of people. And, uh, Nick, you know, basically, you know, shielded himself in between the shooter and, um, this, uh, oh, kid. Boy. yeah. And. At that stage, just when he's copped those four rounds into the back of his uh, right leg, and it was enough to essentially just vaporize his leg. As he said, he was on the ground and putting his own tourniquets on. Three tourniquets. That's that's a lot of fucking tourniquets. And
2: and the part where he went into it being, the story about the infection creeping up the leg was something I saw so many times. Almost every amputee started off, it started off at one point in the body and the infection seemed to be what Cause. Well, that's the what m- kills. Yeah. Yeah. The yes. magnitude yeah. of the injury.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. Um, so he's evacuated, obviously, medevaced back to picked up by Dust Off. Uh, and obviously one of your he other crews out there <laughs> picked him up, uh, taking him back to,
2: uh, Bagram. Shake and then Bagram. Yeah,
0: And then, uh, obviously, as we know, Bagram was pretty much the, the go to place before everyone went to, uh, Germany. Yep. The roll to. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> obviously a lot of surgery there. I think it was reading, and what he said, 20-plus surgeries at Bagram, just in Bagram. Yeah, during just, that
2: point in time? Yeah. Just, I mean, because that was for the whole area. Yeah. Bagram was the main role to hospital.
0: Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so, 20 surgeries just in Bagram, just to stabilize and uh, get him ready for transport out of country uh, back to, you know, into Germany, uh, which took about seven days, I think he said. Seven days. And then he was in Germany for, he reckons, probably about a day, and then straight on another hurricane. Straight to Walter Reed. Straight to Walter Reed. Uh, to start, more, you know, more surgeries. He said, "More surgery." And- well, that
2: was when the that was when the infection started, and the exactly. surgery it just kind of creeped up his leg. He said,
0: "Yeah." So we had more surgery. Obviously, from there, he started, you know, gaining more feeling in, in his uh, left foot. He said, you know, "His big feel- toe, his big toe started I remember moving." That. And it was like a champagne moment, and just from there, just continued to grow stronger and stronger. And fitted with his prosthetic, learning to walk, learning run. to
2: walk. Yep all that all that jazz the army physical fitness test the army putting him through the ringer all the chain of command who didn't think he'd do it who kind of gave him the shot expecting him to fail and the dude fucking pulled through that's amazing yeah, dude that's, that's amazing it. that's it's just
0: and it's funny cuz he had that mindset from the first injury you know he came from a sheltered life you know a bit of a loner no friends no
2: nothing and he had uncommon toughness. Yeah, and then and obviously, obviously the
0: resolve. as we spoke about it, he got to the military and you grow that brotherhood. You know, there's guys I went through with, you know, in 2003, and they're still the same. Oh, I could call them right now. They'll be here fucking tomorrow fighting, you know, fighting the next war. Um, so he had that, you know, that camaraderie that it just kept him going. And I'm sure the guys, some of his guys will be like, fucking just get it. Let's just do it. Let's get back to Afghanistan. Eventually, as he said, it was more Special Operations Command that, took the risk on him. Uh, the army yep. said no. They said, fuck. I'm probably sure they would have said, fuck, no. Of course they no. did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly, especially in this politically correct world these days. Yeah. And he got back, back to Afghanistan, jacked up. Wait till we put these photos up. And we'll, I'm sure, you know, by the time you listen to this, you'll see a whole bunch of photos. I'm going to put them all out there because this guy's jacked up. And dude,
2: just, that's a big boy. Even with one leg, I wouldn't want to fuck that
0: dude. he's an absolute machine. All credit to him. Because again, it paved the way. It's going to pave the way for a lot of people. Not even if you're not even military, if you're just, you know, some young kid that's, you know, just looking for inspiration, inspiration, or you've lost a leg, you know, in a car crash or whatever. You know, it's just Nick's one of those guys. You
2: you definitely got to have a look and read his book. Super humble, super cool dude, super tough dude. There's, there's any man who's a fucking man's man can look up to him. Yeah,
0: 100%. 100%. So if you want to get in contact with Nick, you can head to his website, machinenick.com. So it's the word machine N-I-C-K, dot uh, com. You can jump on, grab his book. He got a book out in uh, January, he said he released a book. So definitely jump on and support, um, support him. And I'm sure he tells more of his story, you know, within his book, you know, pretty much what you've heard over the last, you know, two hours. Uh, he said he'll have uh, autographed copies uh, for sale on... He also does have an Instagram account, which he should have this all up.
2: Nick Machine Library. There you go. It is uh, Nick. Machine. Library. Yeah, there you go.
0: That is, is. So, again, jump on, check out his stuff and follow the guy because he's. Now, for us, if you want to more podcasts, especially Kyle's one, Episode 50, head to our Instagram, which is 0.Lemits.Podcast, which podcast, the same as on Facebook, Leave us again if you want to find these uh, podcasts. You can head Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all of all of all of them. Just Google it, and they'll pop up, and you'll find all the uh, previous podcasts. And actually, for Kyle, Door
2: Gunners Inc. Door Gunners Inc. Or if you're uh you want to reach me by my cell phone two zero two three
0: seven eight three four seven zero. Kyle is a a massive advocate. On- Drug abuse.
2: Addiction recovery. Yeah, addiction recovery. That's all. If you're struggling, hit me up like you guys have been doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. Get out there. Hit him up. Uh, sell or mobile. Oh, we we say mobile in Australia. <laughs> that works. <laughs> <laughs> mobile. It's not a not a car. <laughs> mobile. <laughs> <laughs> <My> automobile. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so hit him up for anything. Also, stay tuned for the news and more coming out. All right, guys, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers, boys. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how a lot like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the Season campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet. And I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know, that's, a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organisations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.